Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, your host, and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. In addition, we have our second ever guest. Uh, Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Yes, I'm uh, I'm Joe Scrabbles. I am executive news editor at IGN, but more importantly, I used to be Matthew's underling on Official Nintendo Magazine. Well, uh, and what an underling! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, what um, what juicy content that we can finally hear the, a perspective on Matthew from someone who worked for him. Um, well, uh, the dunkings can commence. <laughs> I think. Yeah, unfortunately. I, I did somehow come out of our relationship thinking Matthew was amazing, and unfortunately, I've, I've been trying oh to gosh. think of like really, you know, like like fun, mean things to say, and it, actually, it's mostly like, oh yeah, kind of shaped my career. So uh, there you go. Oh, <laughs> so even, the- even Catherine wasn't that complimentary when she's on the podcast, and she's married to me. <laughs> oh, so uh, Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about your? background in games media and and how you came to be um you know this uh, big ign bod i don't know why i said that um you know <laughs> i mean that's, that is i mean if we're if we're gonna go into magazine stuff early big magazine bod is very magazine language so uh yeah yeah i am um, uh, yeah i guess i kind of had a an odd route in like I, I read a lot of games magazines when i was a kid but i never i never obsessed over one i was very much like a a, a covers person i would always just go into sainsbury's or whatever and choose whatever cover looked the best so i'm i'm that you know hanging voter that that everyone's looking to to grab in the magazine world and then i sort of fell off it for a while particularly when i was at uni and i started chasing like uh i wanted to be a music journalist or work in music in some regard apart from playing music couldn't do that so just anything else um mm. And I'd spent like a year after uni sort of vaguely chasing that and doing like a radio show and a, a, like writing a blog and all that stuff. And then quite quickly realized that everyone I met in that industry was absolutely miserable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just hated it. Um, and at the same time, I'd, I'd really gotten into games podcasts and uh, ended up hearing that you could like write community pieces for Destructoid that they would then put, if it was good enough, they would put it on the actual site as an article. Uh, and that, I did something about Halo's multiplayer that got put on there. And then one day I just decided to DM John Hicks from Official Xbox Magazine. I don't remember the thought process for this at all. But just went, well, if I just ask him if I can go to their office, maybe he'll say yes. And <laughs> and he did. <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> like uh, So I, I kind of just said, Hey, do you want me to work for you for a week for free? Um, I wrote this on Destructoid. And he said, yeah. So I came in and got invited back for a second week. And then Steve Hogarty of Official Nintendo Magazine at the time left and recommended that I go for the open position. And then Matthew and Chandra hired me. So that's how I got in. It was quite odd. Yeah, the funny thing was, I remember that interview process going in. John Hicks sent me and Chandra an email and was like, oh, I think you're going to be interviewing this guy, Joe Scrabbles. He's really, really good. He should be the guy. And I remember going into interviews thinking, like, no way. Like, we're not going to just do what John Hicks tells us to do. No, you know, we don't want, you know, John, John Hicks leftovers. Um, and then, yeah, it was just so obvious when we did the interviews. Oh, it was good. like, oh, of course this guy. 
you know like so you managed to overcome like my my weird childish like we're gonna hire our own staff right here <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and then yeah i kind of i, I spent well i got i rode <laughs> o&m into the ground and then <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah. Then went to official <laughs> Xbox magazine for a while. Then Future decided to move to Bath entirely, and or, you know mostly. And I, I did not make that move. And then I sort of muddled my way into IGN in the end. Is the is the long story short? Oh, um, it's, but yeah. it's a, be- a beautiful tale of one man's triumph over um, over the over the mu- <laughs> over the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was working with Matthew like, uh, Joe, and how did you find sort of working on O&M generally? What was that process like to you as a kind of relatively new writer? Uh, so I, there's been a couple of, I've listened to a lot of this podcast, well, I've listened to all of this podcast, and uh, the interesting stuff that really sticks out to me is, A, uh, I'm a lot more fond of O&M than Math- Matthew clearly is. Oh! Um, <laughs> no, not in, not in that you're, as in, I think you had the... A, you had the brunt of the stress. Hmm. There was there was a there was a surrounding problem with Nintendo stuff at that time because it was I came in almost at the perfect worst time for Nintendo writing, as in yeah. like during the kind of the midpoint of 3DS where it was getting quite good, but then also the Wii U. But the other thing that really stuck out to me was Sam you saying that you were the guy that wanted to play Warhawk. On your early magazines, and I was O and M's version of that when I came in. I wanted to do everything on O and M, and so the the kind of the oddness of that situation, and like particularly the the emptiness of the release schedule for a lot of the time, made me so excited to do everything I could to fill that magazine, and I just loved trying out new stuff and so that's mm-hmm. that's my abiding memory of O&M is just like every day having something different to do and being really excited by the process of like how do you fill a magazine when Nintendo not only won't give us anything but doesn't have anything um yeah. and 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 so but it's also made me like incredibly fond of the Wii U I, because I think at one point I'm not sure if Matthew's mentioned this before but certainly early on our remit on the magazine was we will cover every single Wii U game because there were it was possible to do that. At that yeah, time. all twenty-two of them. Exactly. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they then opened the gates to indies and got cool games on there. Um, but but we uh, but for a while, like we touched every single thing, and so like certainly I, this is probably kind of obvious and is the same for anyone who works on a single format magazine. But the Wii U is definitely the console where I've played the majority of the games that ever came out for that console. And mm. I think that really builds like a, a, you know, it's maybe in this case sort of Stockholm syndrome but, you know, I certainly have like a real love for the weirdness of that machine and I and a very almost certainly rose-tinted view of what it was. But yeah, it was just such a... I, oh. I, found, I found working on O&M such... It's such an amazing education in all that stuff as a new writer. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a fascinating time. Yeah, I think um, I have discovered from doing this podcast that I have a similar affection for the PS3, mm. a console that I know is objectively the worst PlayStation, 
Um, and yet I did go and buy, not to spoil our next Samuel Robertson trial episode, but I did go and buy Heavenly Sword for £1.98 after <laughs> we recorded that podcast. Because, I, like you, I have fond memories of this bad hardware because I spent so many hours just looking at it and, mm. and playing games. So, um, yeah, I totally get it. For a while, um, I convinced myself Meverse was genuinely the next big thing in social media. That's how that's that's how into the Wii U I was. Also, I should say, <laughs> I totally didn't answer the part of that that was what was working with Matthew like, which is, a, you know, a basically incredibly friendly version of being edited to within an inch of your life all the time it was great um you know i i I don't want to come on here and a embarrass matthew and b look uncool by being nice all the time but you know some of some of matthew's early edits on my stuff like completely changed how i write um and i think i'm not sure how early this was but one one specific thing i remember was writing this wild, unwieldy, like, written in the moments after I finished the game at 2am review of the wonderful 101, the Platinum game that came out. (laughs) Um, And I had so many, like, big thoughts about it. I really wanted to be like, this is important, and I'm going to give you important language about it. And I just remember Matthew's edit coming back and being like, I think you've forgotten to talk about why the game's fun. And, and kind of getting this, like, and you know, the edits reflected uh, that more eloquently than that. But you know, it was it was a it was a re- like a really interesting sort of funneling of ideas where you know you can talk about the big things in games. But I, I think one thing O and M did really well, and this is primarily because Matthew was heading it out for so long, was I think we talked about why games were fun a lot in a way that uh, I think particularly at the time a lot of video game writing wasn't as interested in uh, and maybe that's a symptom of Nintendo as well but I, I felt that would you know that was a big that was a, a big formative thing for my writing I remember like editing your stuff because you've got such a mega brain and you're like <laughs> a wildly creative guy and like it was never you'd never get anything which was like obvious or basic it was always a little bit kind of galaxy brain thinking which is just which is like it's just so fu- like that stuff's so fun to work with it's also like it's the challenge of is when when you're when you're given a writer who who has like big ideas and such a clear like writing style the art of like editing that stuff without like treading on that voice or like nuking that voice it's a really fun challenge to have it's not one you face that often like not many people give you those kind of words to work with um so it's like a two-way thing you know you have to have something kind of interesting to work with in the first place i do remember Um, i do remember that you you did point out and i still think about this quite regularly when i write about stuff that you pointed out that i made the point that almost every single game had a mechanic that was essentially a puzzle game in disguise. And I would say <laughs> it about everything. I'd just be like, <laughs> find one mechanic. I was like, if you think about it right, this <laughs> yeah. is basically a puzzle game, except it's football. <laughs> it's yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah, you, you like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I really I really had to I really had to cut back on that. <laughs> Yeah, Matthew, I feel like um, you underestimate your sort of um, valuation as a kind of cult figure in the UK games media. You're mm. very well regarded. And um, oh, I wonder well, if you had a... Oh, thank you very much, Sam. Well, if given a right to reply on um, 
Joe's uh, allegation that you weren't as into O&M as him. How would you respond? I would say I would say that was me trying to do my job in in that part of editing a mag is like basically trying to create the kind of environment I had on in Gamer when I joined, which was you you know it's. I had no idea of like how a mag was doing, what it was doing, or what it, you know. I was just there to do my, you know, do my thing. And Greener kind of made a space where I could kind of do my thing as a staff writer and not have to worry. I was talking more about the you talking in retrospect about it on this podcast rather than yeah. The actual, I, it's it's my memories yeah, of the time a, are very you know jolly. Like there, there's very yeah. I, that's the thing. That, that's the thing. Like when I read the mag, it's it's just packed with stuff, and the second I see it on the page. Like I can instantly remember the conversations we had, mm. and like the dumb shit, and and taking the photos. We were quite big on silly photo stuff because Future London had like a photo studio in the building, mm. and there were only like four magazines that used it. So I don't know if we were encouraged to use it per se, but if there was ever an excuse to go down to the photo studio and and arse around, and I remember. Um, <laughs> in, there was like a little dressing room next mm. to the photo studio, and for some reason, there was a face, uh, a mask of. Um, it was Cesc Fabregas, the uh, the Arsenal midfielder. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like that, just ended up in loads of the photos. Yes. So there was always lots of weird jokes in M&M about this sort of like someone wearing this footballer mask. Um, <laughs> Like just dumb stuff like that. Like when I see those pictures, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember. Joe found that mask and decided he was going to wear it for the photo shoot. Well, it's like we and... got, we got really. This is slightly different, but we got really obsessed with this one guy that played Aladdin in Just oh. Dance, <laughs> uh, who had this like incredibly smug grin, and so yeah. we ended up putting him all over the magazine to the point where I think he's in. I think he's in the staff page of the final issue where we have a staff bio for everyone who ever wrote for the magazine. I, yeah. think, I think Smog Aladdin's on there. Yeah, Smog Aladdin, yeah. But, but, so it's the stuff like the stuff was like that was, was really good and um you know. Yeah, I do I do have a, a, a lot of happy memories. Some quite stre- everything it's all tinged with slight stressfulness because a lot of it often we'd print it and send it and then there'd be this sudden thought of like, was that too much? Like <laughs> Did we? Did we? Maybe should we maybe have done that? Like some of it was quite sort of silly, and there was a there was an instant with some like alternative Christmas Carol lyrics. Oh yeah, um, where I was really worried that one of the alternative Christmas carols was implying that we were making fun of how the head of Nintendo sp- at Europe spoke English, uh, <laughs> which was not was, the point. <laughs> It wasn't at all, but I just, if you read it in a certain way, it sounded like that's what we were saying. I was just like, oh no, are we going to get busted? But we didn't, so it was all fine. No, we got busted for other things that we can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly this must weigh heavily on you though, Matthew, because we became friends long after you um, worked on O&M, and yet you still told me that story about the Christmas carols and the (laughs) head of Nintendo (laughs) Europe. So clearly you've been worrying about this for like seven years now. Um so, Joe, uh, talk, do you want to talk a little bit about IGN and working there and what that's been like? Yeah, I can do. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's very different to O&M, I'll tell you that. It's, um, I, so I worked at Future for the bulk of my career before, well, all of my career before I got to, to IGN, or at least, you know, my games writing career. And then uh, I joined this, IGN is quite, quite an odd one in as much as the team I joined, the UK team at the time was five strong 
and is now six strong. So the UK side of IGN specifically is is quite magazine like in that way, or you know certainly the magazines that I've worked on like. Um, and so we have that very sort of small team, scrappy approach to stuff. But IGN as a whole is, you know, it's huge. There's like a hundred people on the content team, so you have this. It's this. It's quite hard to kind of when you first get there, get your head around how many different people are there to do how many different things. And I think mm. a good thing about the company as a whole, this is not just me evangelizing my current employer, but they they do prize people doing lots of different things. So I've done podcasts and videos and documentaries and reviews and previews and all that stuff, despite being in a news role almost the entire time I've been there. Um, mm. But it is, you know, unlike magazines where everything kind of falls on you or your or the people who sit right next to you and everything is a discussion or working out like uh, how we could possibly make this happen. There's quite an interesting thing at IGN's side where it feels like everything kind of will happen and you can make yourself a part of it, if that makes sense. Like, it's quite an abstract way of thinking about it, but somewhere someone is working on the thing you want to work on and it's just a case of finding them and making sure you're a part of that. Which Sounds like Valve. <laughs> yeah, we just yeah we wheel our we wheel our desks across the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> if enough of you get together, you can make Half Life Three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but in ter- but I really the, I think the thing that's kind of been most you know apart from the news is a very different thing on online to magazines. So that you know that was a that was a change for me. But in terms of the way, I think there's quite a lot of old magazine people on IGN, particularly now uh, and particularly in a, like executive positions so we have we still have some of that that writing style that thought about making new weird stuff as well as you know the things IGN's known for which are big reviews and exclusives and all that stuff there is always a weird feature going on or someone testing out a video show that's trying to be something different and I I think it's quite easy to because I certainly did it for years. I think it's easy to ignore because IGN does its thing and everyone sees what it does. But there's so mm. much happening behind the scenes that, that these little weird bits can squeak out and do their own thing. You know, I think you only need to look at like Daniel Cooper and Gavin Murphy and Rory Powers who set up a, a Let's Play show called Prepare to Try. And then that became their career because it was mm. it just grew and grew and grew as this like offshoot of IGN until it became a point where they were like, well, we can just go and do this. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the amazing thing that they, they do. They do support that kind of magazine approach, which is which I, I wasn't necessarily expecting going in. Um, I don't know if that answers your question of what it's like to work on IGN, but uh, yeah, it's it's good. Is basically the answer. It's different, but it's good. Hmm. Yeah, in the US, you've got John Davison as like the big boss, right? Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of like very well respected figure and a lot of magazine DNA from that side for sure. Well, and the the interesting thing being the editor in chief in the UK, Alex Simmons and John both started on magazines when they were about eighteen uh, <laughs> back in the day, and now they're both kind of doing it in a in a different way all the way you know now, which is is mm. is amazing, you know. Yeah, it's cool as well that like you say, you don't you're not just locked into doing news. Like if I want to find your Nintendo writing on IGN, I can, you know. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's and cool that's, they, that's partly yeah. because I just badger people until they let me do it. But you know, it's uh, it, it, it is it is very nice. And I have to say, the Nintendo writing in particular is the stuff. That's when I really kind of feel like I'm 
doing the old the stuff from the old days to a certain extent. It's it's mm. I, I there's something about I think maybe we get kind of caught up in a there's almost something culty about it sometimes but there's there, there there is something about writing about Nintendo games and how they force you to write because they don't have the sort of trappings of or most of them don't have the trappings of like Hollywood cinema or you know things that there is established criticism for that you can ape um mm. and I think Nintendo games really force you to think about how you write much more interestingly uh, and I, so I mm. love those moments where I get to you know take on a Mario game or, or a Zelda, you know, like even just re- reviewing Zelda DLC for Breath of the Wild was amazing. Cause like, how do you write about Zelda DLC? Um, yeah. it, like it's, you know, it doesn't exist. So, it, you know, there's fascinating, there's fascinating ways in there. It's, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. The art of writing about Nintendo is something we talked about in our Mario episode. And, mm. um, yeah, it's as someone who's never had to do it, it's really interesting to hear what the kind of challenges of that are like. I mean, it sounds like um, a good way in is to go, it's like a puzzle game, yes, but it's yes. <laughs> a light gun shooter, you know. Um, that is, it's, you know, it's an old standard, but, but it will work. <laughs> awesome. So I forgot to say what this episode is actually about, which is the best Nintendo 3DS games, and that's why we brought you on, Joe. Mm. Um, I, I know the 3DS uh, pretty well, but you and Matthew are obviously experts. So in this episode, we're going to count down the top 10 best 3ds games rather than what we normally do where we alternate and um, doing that with three people we think is a little bit messy so we've actually just assembled a kind of a master list that aggregates our uh, our votes on the different games and um before we get to the list we're going to talk a bit about the 3ds itself and also uh, some of the kind of weirder games or more interesting games that didn't make our list so we'll take a short break thank you for introducing yourself joe and then we'll get into the 3ds Welcome back to the podcast. In this section, we're going to talk about the Nintendo 3DS, which released in Europe on March 25th, 2011. So it's coming up to the 10-year anniversary, and uh, will almost be the 10-year anniversary by the time you're listening to this. So before we get to our list of the top 10 best 3DS games, we're going to talk a bit about the 3DS generally, how it performed, what its place in the gaming landscape was, and then touch upon some of the more interesting games that happened. Also, uh, Joe and Matthew can talk about what it was like to kind of cover the 3DS from a press perspective. Mm. So when the 3DS launched, it was a bit of a slow starter, right? It got an early price cut because sales weren't fantastic. It didn't launch with amazing games, though great games did come within its first year. Um, and over time, it found its feet. So uh, for the two of you, what did you think the um, the environment was that the, D- the 3DS was launching into? And how did it differ from when the DS launched years earlier? So I wasn't on Max when when the DS launched. And I think that the you know, the DS was such a sort of surprise mega smash. I mean, I don't think anyone could have necessarily have predicted that. And, you know, in fact, it, you know, it didn't really feel like it massively took off until you got like the DS Lite, which is where it really kind of came alive. Um, I remember at the time thinking like, like there was definitely a sense that something new had to come along because it felt like they were really stretching out the DS. Cause we'd had the DSi, which was like the last form of it. And, you know, which added like the weird little camera and some kind of eShop stuff. And, you know, there was a sense of kind of beginning to get, get a, 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 you know, a little bit bored. Um, I don't think the software had necessarily dried up. Like, it's not really how I remember it. You know, it wasn't like, you know, oh God, we're desperate for something to come along. Um, 
my main moment. I know, the thing about the 3DS is quite hard to remember the exact moment, just because when they announced it, it was so mad, and the idea of it was so kind of crazy. The the, the whole 3D screen thing, like that was just such a massive, exciting story that it instantly became the story. So what was happening like before gets washed away a bit. Yeah, this I find the three. So I I joined O and M just over a year into. So maybe maybe approaching a year and a half after the 3DS came out, yeah. I think. And yeah. so I kind of missed the really bad part for it, and I don't really have a I, I don't really have a kind of a vibe for what it was like coming in. I think the really interesting thing about the 3DS is the DS was so and you kind of touched on this, Matthew. Like the DS was so huge and such a sort of ubiquitous device that the 3DS almost felt like uh, there was something kind of, uh, I I don't think arrogance the right word, but there's something about it where it's like they almost didn't need to release something like this, and yet the idea was so strange that they kind of... It's very Nintendo-y. It's very odd to to think that Mm. this is the thing you need to do next with that idea. Um, In the same... I I guess, you know, it's reflected in Wii to Wii U. Um... There's there's something about the the choices made here that I thought think is in retrospect like you you can't really trace the line they were following there for me um, mm. and and I think that was reflected when it launched you know it didn't it didn't necessarily find the audience that it needed to and and I think that that also ties into what I think the 3ds did more interestingly as time went on which is it forced developers and Nintendo to sort of reckon with it a bit and do interesting things with it that they weren't doing elsewhere. Like a lot of the 3DS library, and we'll get onto it, is quite singular. You know, there's a lot of games that came out just for 3DS and never carried on on a different platform later. They they found their feet there, they maybe did well there, and then that was kind of it. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I think the 3DS is such a, a fascinating and I think easy to overlook bit of Nintendo madness. Um, that that was yeah. really exciting to cover. The 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 launch of it, like I thought it was going to be massive, just because everyone was so excited. Like it, it, at, at preview stage, you know, it makes such a good impact in a five minute demo because mm. of the screen. Like it's such an, an interesting like gimmick. You know, it's a bit like when you try VR for the first time. You're just like, oh wow, how can this not be the biggest thing ever? Mm. And then you remember that not everything kind of has you know can sort of sustain that. At launch, it felt a lot more like the the DS in terms of software, mm. and 3DS is definitely where you basically see the death of like touch generation Nintendo, the kind of casual Nintendo, the Nintendo which had basically been built on DS and Wii, and it becomes like the version of what is now doing really well on Switch. I think, mm. like I would say, you know, especially the, the a couple of years into 3DS, it's a much more like hardcore kind of console mm. than the DS was, like the first-party games particularly. Um, and they're a big shift away from some of the stuff they were doing first-party on Wii. Um, I don't know. I that, that must have been in the works. Like, I think the mistake sometimes is to see that as a reaction, to say, like, it didn't launch big, so they changed direction, but that, that simply couldn't be true. Mm. Like, they must have made the decision to change direction. But the fact that it launched with, like, a Nintendogs and a Pilot Wings or whatever, and, you know, Nintendogs was one of the big games that made ds and here it just had very little impact at all you know it was like oh this doesn't work anymore um 
And on the mag, that was kind of interesting because on one hand, we were like, oh dear, why is there not more interest in 3DS? That's going to affect the magazine negatively. On the other hand, Nintendo started making the kind of stuff which was more like appealing to us personally. Mm. So, you know, and I think by the time we got to like O&M, actually we kicked into most of the games on our top 10, I would say, come from the O N. you know, that, that period a couple of years in. Yeah. There's very little from like the first year and a bit of 3DS on here. None, in fact. I think it's, you know, it's easy to, like, you you definitely said it there, you know, there is something of the effect of VR to it as well, and I think that cuts both ways in that the 3D is still, you know, I turned turned on my 3DS for this, and the 3D is still kind of amazing. Right. The fact that I've not seen anyone else try to do the no glasses 3D is kind of confusing to me because... It's still a magical effect that it can yeah, do that yeah. to you. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really cool, but I think it also has that effect of, you know, anything. Uh, I almost went into the Arthur C. Clarke thing about being indistinguishable from magic. Um, yeah. <laughs> like anything that goes that far into techie weirdness, I think init- it like inherently loses some of the the mainstream appeal, and I think kind of trying to make that sell to a mainstream audience of like, well, you're going to love this because, you know, <laughs> it makes your eyes feel weird, uh, is, you know, <laughs> it, I think that is a hard sell. That, I mean, that was the official slogan. It was, yes. Was it's going to make your eyes feel weird. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely, I, I consider it one of the more, more like fascinating Nintendo experiments and their their kind of approach to... Because, like you say, it must have been in the works. The, the hardcore side mm. of that stuff must have been on the way. They must have made a concerted effort to go, we're going to make cool, weird stuff for this. Um, and yeah, it, it turned into... I think certainly by the time I got to O&M, it was, it was really picking up steam and doing some strange things. Mm. In terms of um, the environment it launched into, so... I think that 3DS reflects a real moment in time where there was this fascination with 3D post-Avatar and um, you were starting to see 3D TVs and 3D Blu-rays and that in itself feels very much like, um, you know, a a long time ago at this point. And um, Mm. I think that I agree with you. The 3D effect is very powerful, but I almost forgot that it was part of the console at certain points during its lifespan because I never really, past a certain point, I never really switched it on. There's a few first-party Nintendo games where I felt like the 3D slider was kind of essential. Um, so Mario 3D Land, which we'll talk about in a bit, that that the way the kind of levels were designed in that felt like it was kind of perfect for that tunnel 3D effect that the 3DS has. But as Nintendo itself started revising the 3DS to remove the 3D, um, it, <laughs> it did kind of carefully phase it out as a USP. What do you think was the sort of story there? Oh, I mean... I don't know that I mean, they've never they've never like gone on record and specifically said like you know 3D's a bust or whatever. I mean there was definitely when they released the um the 2DS without the 3D um it began like the conversation began to change a little bit. I remember reading um I think there was an interview with like Anuma when they were making um Link Between Worlds saying that they tweaked a few things that were maybe more 3D dependent because basically they couldn't have anything 
like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, well, this seems like a, a bit of a bust. Yeah. I was never a big fan of the 2DS. No, I wasn't um, either. But they, they did. And interestingly, that when we first got shown Link Between Worlds, it was at a, a 2DS sort of reveal as well. So they mm. made they made a point of linking those two ideas quite uh, quite overtly. Yeah. Also, the name 2DS is still the worst. Like, what a way to do down your own console. <laughs> it's. I think it's one of the like worst looking and and feeling Nintendo um, oh, bits of hardware. It yeah. looks like a like like some like an etch a sketch or something. It's like a, a real eighties chunky thing. Mm. It's just, it's just so big, the tablet. The fact they removed the hinge on it. Oh, I, I, just, I didn't get it. Yeah, also, you know, very much aiming at a younger audience. And yet, the thing barely fits in my hands. And I've got horrible big hands. Like a kid <laughs> is just going to be sort of halfway up it, unable to reach the triggers as far as I can understand it. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a bizarre thing. Unless you've got a child incredibly long long fingers yeah just like, <laughs> like the pepper army man just sort yeah. of <laughs> gangly child that's who they were going for and the, the the maddest thing about it like being on the mag that was that was like a definite moment where i didn't really like something and there was absolutely no way that that could be the line of mm. official nintendo magazine mm. you know that that was like, cause i remember chandra was actually quite into it i think he had a kid yes and he was like yeah, great. So basically, Chandra wrote all the stuff about the 2DS, saying, like, my kid will love it. But I remember thinking, like, that's the kind of thing Endgamer would have had a field day with. Yeah. Just because it looks so weird. I mean, we didn't, I didn't like it when they did the um, the massive DS. That was, like, the kind of grandma DS the towards XL. the end of it. Mm. The XL, yeah. I was never, like, particularly into that either. And that was a rare point where I, I, I wished I had a bit more, like, leeway to just, you know, crack some jokes about it. But... That wasn't really the place of official Nintendo magazine. It's funny you mentioned Chandra taking on that 2DS stuff, because it occurred to me as you were talking about it that I have no memory of writing about that console at all. Like, I, I, I think I must never have actually put into words any feelings about the 2DS, <laughs> because, yeah, I agree, it just... It just did we wasn't... even have one in the office? I don't know that we did. I think Chandra may have just taken it up. I think we got, yeah, I think we got sent one that became not O&M's. Uh, <laughs> Classic, yeah. But the yeah, there was um, that they're messing about with it. it was was interesting. Like the 3ds in general, the number of different what do you call them form factors it had over the over the time it was a thing. I suppose it still is technically a thing. Um, you know, when you get to the new 3ds and the new 3ds XL, uh, I think you you start to see them really sort of. Uh, sort of taking on and, and messing with what that thing could be. I really liked the new 3DS. Um, oh, fantastic. Like, with its one exclusive game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very strange idea, again. Um, yeah. But the, the the look of it, the feel of it, I really liked its matte. Like, the matte finish, they had the SNES buttons on one of them, and oh, it was mm. just, oh, it was a lovely thing. Like, it, it is nice. that really felt like the moment at which they were embracing those people were who were coming in for the hardcore in inverted commas games and like we'll give you this you know this thing that's a throwback but it's new and it's shiny and it's got this whole you know we're going to pretend to give you more power uh yeah it was uh it was very cool like i i, I do like when they start messing around with that and i it, i i wonder whether we're going to start seeing that with switch or whether that that this was kind of the end of 
mm. Nintendo really quite regularly changing up what its what its handhelds are. Mm. Yeah. So is that where you two come down? Like this is the best version of the the 3ds, the um the new 3ds. That was the the best version of the console to you two. I think so. Yeah, it's just very pleasant. Like the the original 3ds was like a little hard to hold okay it had a few i think it had a few pointy corners mm. a few pointy bits it was it wasn't perfect it wasn't like the ds fat but it was uh it wasn't quite as as like sleek as the ds Lite. i think it you know it, it took them a while to kind of find the perfect form it did also yeah. scratch its own screen which was never great <laughs> like that bottom yeah, screen why they put ridges that touched the top screen never yeah, well, made sense not ideal <laughs> yeah it was like the most varnished piece of like um hardware i've ever owned though like the top screen was so shiny it was yeah it was constantly <laughs> covered in fingerprints yeah, um, yeah. and they had the, the metallic finish uh you know models as well so you, it's just like fingerprints inside and out it looks like a crime scene mm. <laughs> What a mucky little gem. Yeah, yeah, it looks like that scene in Seven where they find the, the hidden message on the wall in fingerprints. It's that's, just, uh, that is, if you read the Water Us, that's exactly what they that's, wanted. Yeah, that's, that's what, what they, they were going for. Going for. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, I want this to have the essence of Seven. Yeah, I want this to be the bit of, <laughs> I think it was greed in Seven. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like covering the 3DS on O&M then? You touched a bit on it there, but... Um, I suppose as well, Matthew, it'd be cool to go a bit more in depth with how you sort of perceived the console on Endgamer. But like, what was the, I guess, what was the kind of course of its life over over the years? How did the sort of feeling towards the console change? I mean, the, I'd say one of the weird things about being on a mag is that you are like, you're aware of how a console's doing, but you're also kind of insulated from it because you're like, well, like, however it's performing, we still cover it, mm. and we're still kind of enthusiastic about it. So you exist in this little bubble where you're just kind of having the best time with it because you're playing all the games. Like, I remember it being generally, like, a constant flow of really good stuff. Um, like, it was very, very well-paced. Um, on Endgamer, like, one weird quirk is that the 3DS, because it was region-locked, was, like, instantly killed a lot of our import fun. Like, we bought a Japanese 3DS... But we were doing these import reviews thinking, well, is anyone really going to, is anyone else actually importing a 3DS to buy this? Because on DS, you know, because it was region free, all that import stuff felt a lot more valuable. Um, so that that killed some of the fun, um, like from a technical level as well. I wanted to mention, like, um, the way you capture from Nintendo handhelds is that Nintendo build like a capture device, oh my God. Um, which is like, you know, like a debug version of the console. So it's it's you've got the console but then it's attached to this like massive metal box Did- which is often like 10 times the size of the console and you think what the hell is this thing possibly doing and then you plug that into the pc and you can capture video and screens off it and, and whatnot the, the, um, the 3ds capture unit looks like submarine equipment it's absolutely yeah. <laughs> wild it's this huge like gunmetal gray box with two wires come out that stick into a 3DS that can't be removed. The 3DS is imprisoned in its capture device, yeah. um, which then in turn links to a PC. The software that you got provided to capture stuff from is... In, it looks like Mac shareware from the 90s. Like It was wild. I have no idea who was making it. <laughs> it did make it feel like you were on the inside of something but yeah it also it's felt the, like you were in the 1980s trying to use yeah. a, a 2000s console but uh, we, we, like 
until you got that machine, you basically couldn't take screenshots mm. from the console. And remember, that was a bit that was definitely a problem on Endgame. I think it took us about a year to get a 3DS capture device, so it's like we could only use press shots. And there are like maybe five shots per game, which is why like any you read any preview or review of those games, it's the same thing over and over again. I think to the point where like we actually ended sending one of our 3DSs to like this random bloke in America who was like offering to they modded it. He modded the console so he could plug it into a PC. I think he added like a you know HDMI port <laughs> to the back of our 3DS, and it was kind of one of those things where you're like. That just looks so illegal. I, I had a, <laughs> like the DS itself, that sleek design, and it had all this like, like box coming out the bottom of it. It looked like some sort of um, back alley cyber mod in cyberpunk yeah. or something. You know, it was like clearly dodge. I had a fascinating um, conversation this week with a guy at IGN who's who's trying to get his who's trying to get a capturable 3DS. Um, right, and he is talking to a guy. It may be the guy you're talking about, who apparently became sort of the <laughs> the god of 3DS capture in the old days, and went into retirement, and is now coming out of retirement to make one more 3DS capture <laughs> For device. One last job. It's absolutely <laughs> nuts. I want to write about I can't about wait for him. the film where he's played by Robert Redford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's like it's such a weird niche industry, but it had to exist at some point that someone yeah. was just shoving HDMIs into the backs of 3DSs <laughs> that couldn't handle it. God bless them. Aww. But uh, on our own M, it was all above level. Yes. <laughs> the region lock thing is interesting because that felt very much like a reaction to the um, proliferation of piracy on the DS, right? Like, they, Nintendo were just, I think, so wary of that. They were doing everything they could to just, I don't know, lock things down. But I agree with you, it does make for a less... Um, a less interesting console. That was one of the fun things about being an early DS owner was, you know, tracking mm. down a Wendan on PlayAsia or whatever and then, you know, figuring out these kind of cool games and, and not having any barriers to playing them. Yeah, um, or like the... Was it the... I can't remember if it, if it was like the Ace Attorneys. Like, some Japanese games had the English localization in them as well. Mm. You know, things like that. You're like, oh, you just missed out on a whole, a whole lot of stuff. Because back then, they weren't as good at, like, international releases either. Like, sometimes there would be a big gap for certain things. So, yeah, the import seems vital. 3DS was just... I don't know. It felt... The, the whole thing was kind of... You were kind of d- doing, as Nintendo said. It was, it was a lot more, like you know, their version of the console kind of locked down. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I suppose then let's get into the games lineup. Um, the 3DS, to me, looking over the library for this episode, I felt like there were a lot of gems, but the library clearly wasn't as deep as the DS. And it felt like that was partly due to a less in the way of third-party support. And I wonder if like the rise of mobile gaming at this time meant that some developers or publishers threw more attention at that. But... Um, for the two of you, what did you make of the the library of the 3DS overall? Looking back, I, I think I think you've nailed it there for me. That I think the 3DS maybe you know has one of the has an incredibly strong like top ten twenty games. There's there's some like genuine all timers in there, but I think yes, it could never it could never be deep. And I think partly that's the mobile thing, and I think partly it's the I think if you were a developer making a 3DS game, certainly in the first few years, and you weren't thinking about the 3D element, then you were going to get 
pilloried for it when it came out because people would go, well, what's why is it on the 3DS? But equally, do you want to be a developer making like a bespoke 3D mode for your game? So I think it put people in this kind of odd midpoint of, well, should we even bother? Because we'll have to put in so much extra work to make this a good 3DS game. Mm. Um, but it, I think it also led to, like I said earlier, a lot of developers doing one-offs or weird experiments or strange versions of games on 3DS in a way that makes it maybe not a sort of console full of 10 out of 10s, but certainly a console full of, like, if you're really into your games and and development and and weird ideas, there's so much to dig into there. There's so many bizarre little things where you could see people kind of getting to make the one thing they always thought maybe they wouldn't get to, perhaps. Mm. Um, Yeah, which which I always enjoyed. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think a, like a couple of things happened. I think this is the first Nintendo console where like um, some like the the eShop had some like genuinely some of the best games on the console were on the eShop, which had happened. Like WiiWare had a little bit, but it was kind of baby steps. I felt like Nintendo kind of got their indie act together a little bit with a little bit more with this, um, and then a little bit more with Wii U, and now Switch. It's obviously sort of flying, and it's like a almost like the second place you expect to find indie games after PC. Mm. Um, And the other thing is, uh, like, there was just such a step up in, in, like, first-party quality in certain series just really got their act together that it almost felt like, you know, there were some games which had been massive on Wii, but critically probably as badly received as that series ever had been. Um thinking mainly like Mario Kart and Animal Crossing like the Animal Crossing on Wii not not a great Animal Crossing the Mario Kart below you know massive but it isn't an all-timer I don't think and there was this sense of like like all or nothing you know and we got these first party versions of like older games which were just you know all singing all dancing they pulled out all the stops I mean they single-handedly basically revitalized fire emblem as an important series and it was basically dead up until that but you know Mm. you know fire emblem on Wii. there was one but can anyone name it (laughs) you know it's it's you know and and now it's absolutely massive people look forward to a new fire emblem like they'd look forward to a new you know maybe not mario and zelda but it's it's definitely second tier nintendo now um so that was really exciting i I actually looking over the library, wonder if, um, if did 3DS have a 10 out of 10 game? Do you think? Because I think it had loads of nines, but I don't know if there's an absolute 10 out of 10 like all timer in the lineup for me. I, well, I mean, we'll get onto it. I do think Fire Emblem has a shout there, and I think for the right kind of person, Animal Crossing would as well. I think there were. I think there mm. were a few, but I think it's those. I do think it's those sort of, for want of a better term, like B tier Nintendo games that sort of stepped up on 3DS rather than the old standards that really, mm. you know, really went full all timer. But I, I definitely think some of the massive smashes we're seeing on Switch are built on a foundation of like the affection people had for their 3DS versions. Mm. You know, I, th- I, d- I do not think Animal Crossing on Switch is the huge thing it is without new leaf having been excellent and likewise fire emblem like you know that just wouldn't that just wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely 
Um, so there was one other weird thing that I uh, forgot to mention about the 3DS that um, I think spoke to a little bit of Nintendo's, I don't know, I don't want to say insecurity, but certainly they were trying to be reactive. The second stick you could um, add to the console. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is worth talking about because what a weird add-on that was. Like it made the console very unsightly and required a battery. Um and mm. was built mostly for Monster Hunter, I believe. Did either of you have have one of these? I didn't get into Monster Hunter and we'll definitely get onto Monster Hunter uh until the new 3DS properly. So so I I think I was playing <laughs> so I think I was playing an early version of Monster Hunter 4 on an original 3DS where they they bodged second stick controls without the second stick. Uh, and then mm. once the new 3DS came along with its weird extra nub, uh, <laughs> like this strange kind of miniature fairy-sized uh, stick that they added to it, that was when I actually realised that the game was amazing. Um, so yeah, I never actually used the the, the proper second stick because uh, it was it was oh. frankly too bizarre and too, so oh, obviously just, uh, doomed as an idea. <laughs> just an abomination. <laughs> Nintendo's ability to make beautiful things and stick them inside ugly things is just <laughs> really second to none. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. I, I think didn't Resident Evil Revelations use it for twin stick mm. control mm. as yeah. well? Um, but whatever it was used in. Like, I don't think I owned one. I think we had one in the office. Well, we did have one in the office, but, um, yeah, just just terrible. Yeah, absolutely. So, from here then, we'll fire through a bunch of interesting games that didn't make our top ten. There might be, a th- for the two of you, by the way, I might throw in a couple more in here that I think are worth discussing, even mm-hmm. if they're, um, you know, not necessarily on our list right now, just so we cover, try and be as comprehensive as possible. But, Matthew, oh. why don't you kick us off with uh, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Shadow Wars and why this was interesting? Yeah, so this is um, this is a weird one. This is actually like a Julian Gollop, so Mr. XCOM developed um, tactical game. It's not as deep as XCOM. It's more like uh, the ones he did on um, GBA, which uh, I think is like Rebel Star. I think is the name of it. Um, apologies to any any people if that's that's massively wrong. Um, just a really really solid little tactical shooter in the vein of in the vein of XCOM in terms of like moving units around um they were quite fixed characters had special abilities um this was one of those really weird launch games which we probably paid the least amount of attention to uh, it was a Ubisoft game Ubisoft had gone quite heavy at launch um they hadn't talked about it at all like this is the one that I don't think we played at any preview events and you know we didn't know that you know this is being made in a genre by someone who's amazing at that genre um yeah, and I think like literally like we were going to stick it in reviews roundup or something, and then uh, I remember Kitsy playing it, and he was like, "Oh bloody hell, this is great!" Um, yeah, it's just like seemingly sort of forgotten. Like uh, this is a classic. Buy it on eBay if you can. Yeah, I think you'd have a good time with it. Like eight out of ten. Yeah, mm-hmm. this was this was one of those ones where I kind of when we we talked about it so much that I just went scouring CEXs until I found it, and it is it is a really neat little thing i i forgive me did this come out before the xcom reboot or afterwards because i can't I remember before I can't, yeah i can't like because yeah. i think if it had come out after the reboot people would talk about it way more because xcom on 3ds would be a thing that 
sold this game uh, in in a, mm. in a really interesting way. Whereas, well, like you say, it just kind of flew under the radar to a certain extent. P- p- post XCOM, Julian, even though he wasn't involved with it, post the reboot, Julian Gollop suddenly had like a lot more kind of like heft all of a sudden because mm. they did all that Phoenix point, which is like basically from the maker of that series that you now like. Um, which you wonder if they might have said that about this too, yeah. if it had become after. I've just looked, it came out the year before. So almost really unlucky timing, because it, yeah. it could have been the perfect selling point. Yeah, But that's 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 like a classic 3DS hidden gem, I'd say. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, Julian Gollop. I think as well it was a generational thing where XCOM Enemy Unknown came out just as people kind of like were ready to sort of get nostalgic about the older XCOM games um mm. so yeah missed its mark but uh yeah not very expensive on ebay i was looking at it quite recently so fluidity spin cycle matthew um talk me through this one yeah this so this came from curve this is actually sequel to one of the better WiiWare games uh called hydro venture which was like like metroid but you're a puddle um <laughs> And you sort of slurped it around, and it had like it was a two D game, but it was like water physics. So it was about like tilting this water. I guess um, what was the tilty game on? P- wasn't there a tilty game on PSP or Vita where you controlled liquid? We controlled mm, liquid. flow. Is it flow? No, no, flow is just that game with uh, that's got water in it. Um, Maybe not. What, oh, 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 a little, what was the one with the little like the space hopper ball characters? Loco Roco is that the one? That was a tilty game, wasn't it? I think it yeah, was. you tilt. Yeah. You just use the um, uh, the sort of shoulder buttons to do that, though. Yes, it had it had a kind of similar energy to that, except here you use the gyroscopes, and on the Wii you use the remote to tilt it. Um, this was like a slightly more kind of cut-down version, so it wasn't like a big open-world thing. It was like contained levels, basically all revolving around the water, gas, and ice, the changing states, and, and the different abilities that they gave you. Um, just really beautifully made. Really great little puzzle game. I, I just really rated this one. Um, it is an eShop game, and eShop will get like deleted, I'm sure, at some point. Um, so probably worth getting down <laughs> sooner rather than later. Such a bad name, though. Fluidity Spin Cycle. I mean, yeah. what were they thinking? <laughs> It may have been called Hydroventure Spin Cycle. I can't remember. Like it kept, it had loads of different names in different places. Mm. But Hydroventure, good name. Yeah. But yeah, Fluidity Spin Cycle, decent. Curve for actually, they went quite big on DS stuff because they did that and they did the uh, Stealth Bastard or whatever it was yeah. as well, mm. um, which was good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the um, eShop thing is a good point, actually. There's a couple of quite rare Shin Megami Tensei games. I'm sort of debating dropping like 30 quid on a piece before they vanish (laughs) into the abyss forever. Um, So, Matthew, talk us through Project X-Zone, a kind of mashup game uh, featuring lots of different characters from Japanese publishers. Yeah, um, so this was Capcom, Namco Bandai and Sega getting together to make a sort of a... like a. wasn't it a turn-paced RPG? It's, it was like, it's like a, it was approaching. It, it's kind of a tactical, a tactical RPG in the vein of Fire Emblem to a certain extent. There's a lot about like positioning of characters and teaming them up and and kind of making yeah. you, you know controlling a battlefield to a certain extent. But all the characters were taken from like popular games from those three publishers, and so it was like this mad mashup of like. You know what happens if if like Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine have to team up with you know these two bods no one remembers from Valkyria Chronicles <laughs> and whatever RPGs Bandai Namco made. Um, 
this is such a good game on paper that I do think the cast list kind of drops off pretty fast. You know, there's like a, there's a, there's a couple of people you're like, oh wow, that's really cool, and then you know it's like Mega Man teaming up with Resident Evil and you know whatever, and then very quickly like the bottom two thirds of the list is is like quite obscure JRPG characters. But you do realize um, quickly how many more iconic characters Capcom has than Namco or Sega put together. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. You know, everything I think of is like, oh yeah, Dante and Mega Man, Capcom and Capcom. Like it's all it, you know. You, you you do have a sense of that, particularly the Namco side. I mean, there's maybe like Hey Hachi from Tekken, and then. Is that it? Like, what else were they going to have in there? This yeah. Yeah, this game was so um, weird that I have almost no memory of what happened in it. Like, every line in it was so baffling that it immediately left my brain. I just know it existed. It was such a it had like thing. It had quite big, like, Kingdom Hearts energy mm. in that it, it, it just went, like, full in on its own lore as well. Like, it was pretty baffling. Um but it's an interesting thing, and it always looked great in screenshots yeah. in the mag because it just had such weird characters together. Um, like, uh, probably more fun to write about and think about than to probably play. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those ones which I think people will, years from now, say, oh, you know, I wish I'd seen that, or that was an interesting thing. It certainly won't be a, a useless thing to own in, you know, Damo. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, Matthew trying to manipulate the second-hand eBay market yet again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was, all about. there was a sequel too, right? Did they ever add Phoenix Wright to this series? Uh, I I actually don't know. I, I, I don't know if did the sequel. No, the sequel did come out in the West. Um, I, I don't think we covered the sequel, or it was post O and M. I think it was post O and M. Yeah, so mm. not worth talking about. I'm I'm looking at the cover art, and Phoenix Wright is right at the top of it. So yes, oh, he well, was there in it. He is there. Well, there you go, Matthew. You better track that down immediately. Um, yeah. Cool. So, Tomodachi Life. This is something I know was kind of like big among like UK games journalists mm. or some. Um, basically, I'm talking about you two and then like three other people. But um, <laughs> what was all this about? Tomodachi Life is, uh, on the surface, is an attempt to do something like The Sims with Mies. Like, I, I think that's how you would pitch it to someone yeah. had they never kind of looked at it so you would build a little you'd build a group of of me's and they'd all live in a little town uh and i i think you kind of manipulated relationships and and you know sort of kept them all happy but really it was just a bizarre japanese joke generator uh, that the mm. whole thing was this wild like portal to cutscenes that made absolutely no sense uh, and and really funny localization and and very interesting like uh, comedy decisions being made and it, it kind of at a certain point you were no longer playing the game to see what happened to the Mies. you were playing the game to unlock the next joke uh, it was really mm. really weird and it had uh, it had like s- uh, speech synthesizing mm. so. It was all spoken in, like, Microsoft Sam. They all used to talk like this. Hello, I am in Tomodachi Life. That's an incredible um, impression of Tomodachi Life characters. <laughs> like, they all sounded very, sort of, highly strung. Um, <laughs> and it's just, like, a meme machine. Um, I can't remember what the singing portion was, like, whether you could type the lyrics you in. You could, yeah, because it would have... But there are so many things where they get, like, 
these people singing like little like Reggie me singing like some gangster rap to like you know an Awata me or whatever. But yeah, you could type the 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 tunes were set, but you could type the lyrics and it would attempt to fit the 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 lyrics you typed to the music. So we were doing it was like it is a gift to a magazine, Tom and Actually Life. Yeah. Like the num- the the sheer oddity of the screenshots alone was great but you know in terms of building a sort of mag culture and a personality the the amount of stupid bullshit sorry i forget if you can swear or not stupid bullshit in tomodachi life is it just it was so much fun to play with and i remember it being i th- i think i'm getting this right it, i think it was announced for japan before it was announced for a western release and I think yeah. it was one of those ones we sort of looked at really longingly on the magazine. And when it did get announced, we were we we just we wrote about it constantly for a few months because it was just it was just wonderful yeah. for that stuff. Nintendo went quite big on this, I think. Yeah, like they 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 thought it could be like a Sims or an Animal Crossing. Like I think they 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 put like a surprising amount of like heft behind it. I think like Chandra went on a trip. Someone went. Did you go on a trip? No, I didn't. Someone went to like Nintendo of Europe to like interview because um, it's it's like Mr. Metroid, yeah. who is the is the head of this one, like the sort of the WarioWare Metroid guy um, who I've talked about before, and now his name escapes me. Same, <laughs> yeah, terrible. Um, yeah, so super super weird game, completely shapeless, but very very funny, very similar like uh, vibe to playing Animal Crossing. You kind of dip in. And you play it loads for like the first few days mm. that you have it, and then after a while you're maybe just going in and seeing like your you know Michael Jackson me screaming at a you know whatever Robocop me. Um, <laughs> that seemed less controversial in 2014. Um, <laughs> yeah, somehow Robocop was the one who seemed more controversial at that time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, moving on then. Um, yep. <laughs> so the uh, on the Nintendo eShop side, uh, fairly early on. Uh, level five experimented with Guild O One and Guild O Two, basically little sort of seasons or collections of um, smaller games released onto the eShop. Um, there's a Liberation Maiden, Aeroporter, Crimson Shroud, um, Weapon Shop, Diomas, uh, Attack of the Friday Monsters, Bugs vs Tanks, and the Starship Damray. Bugs vs Tanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, I would say they all got a mixed critical reception in some way or another, except maybe, Joe, one of the ones you put down on your original long list for the yeah. top ten. Yeah, Crimson Shroud, right? Crimson That's Shroud. Yours. Yeah, it's by, and I'm about to forget someone's name again, but it's the guy who did Vagrant Story. What's he? Matsune. Matsune. Um, and so Guild as a whole was, I absolutely loved it. Like, as a, as a writer and a fan of the games, I thought it was such a cool idea. Because all of these things had a name attached. Uh, so Liberation Maiden was Suda51. Aeroporter was Ute Saito, who made Seaman. Uh, uh, and and yeah. Odama, the pinball microphone game on the, games, on the GameCube. <laughs> Weapon Shop DMSA was a, was a comedian in Japan. Uh, Attack of the Friday yeah. Monsters is a guy that makes all of those kinds of games. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Bugs vs. Tanks was um, the Mega Man Man. Oh my god, I'm bad at names. Um, uh, yeah, and the Starship Damray was like the the odd one out. I think a kind of a smaller team. Um, yeah, but just like a fascinating, like tiny little bite sized games made by people who were kind of given free reign to just make whatever they wanted. 
Um, and Crimson Shroud was the one that stood out for me. It was a, it's a, a traditional RPG, like JRPG, but told as if you're playing a tabletop role-playing game. So it has an element of storytelling from sort of outside of the game to some extent and a really nice you know it looked like uh it looked like vagrant story cover art kind of being played uh and you were rolling mm. uh in-game digital 12 uh, like 12-sided die and stuff or dice um and it was just like it was a really good chewy rpg in bite-sized form with one major floor it had an area where you had to grind for one item and the 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 whatever algorithm behind it was kind of letting you get that item made it so incredibly rare and it didn't give you enough of a hint as to what was going on there that people just stopped at this point but if you carried on to the end like spoilers for crimson shroud uh crimson shroud ends with the entire world ending it in a huge apocalypse and it just stops and you're like what on earth is going on and then it turns out you're meant to play it again in kind of like proto near style to fix the game in new game plus um so it had these great ideas and i think it really speaks to the guild project's sort of successes i think a lot of these games were sort of sixes or sevens for us but there was some just lovely thinking in all of them. And I love I loved the feeling that level five, you know, I think Japanese development in particular doesn't necessarily prize the individual a lot of the time. And these were very personal games for a lot of people. And I thought that was a, mm. a great experiment. Yeah, of these, um, I've played Attack of the Friday Monsters and Liberation Maiden. And mm. I, I quite like Liberation Maiden. I think that was a, a nice looking game for the 3DS. Yeah, it um, really was. Yeah, fast moving shooter. Um, Attack of the Friday Monsters, I believe, is like... I remember it being kind of like a slice of life anime, but with monsters in the background. Um, yeah, it was a. Yeah. It was sort of a. You're a kid in the summer with those very specific sounding cicadas that they have in Japan playing all the time. So it sounds really warm and lovely. And there was sort of a card game element. You would collect cards yeah. and you could play against other characters. But there was this backdrop that there was going to maybe be a kaiju fight in on the Friday of the game. So you were sort of playing <laughs> under a time limit and not quite sure whether it's, you know, the the main character's imagination or whether there is actually going to be Godzilla stamping on his little lovely town. It's a, a little bit of a, like persona energy. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, it was. I, I really loved Attack of the Friday Monsters. I think it really holds up. And the the, the creator um, recently announced a, a what's it called? Crayon Shinchan, the the like the kind of kids anime, um, mm. and he's announced a game that looks fundamentally identical to attack of the friday monsters but licensed and it looks really lovely which is currently Ooh. switch only but um yeah it was a, just a, a great little thing mm, for sure uh so yeah but i'm sure we're going to send at least like five people to go and buy those games on uh, yeah. on the e-shop now um so the n64 ports that came to 3ds uh, i wanted to raise these because we decided to leave them out of the top 10 because we thought it made more sense to keep the top 10 as like original uh, 3DS games um, for mm. the kind of most interesting suggestions. But these were all the best versions of these games, right? So uh, Star Fox 64 uh, released in, in 3D. That is a game where I remember playing with the um, 3D slider fully on and it mm. looked amazing because the kind of, you know, the tunnel base sort of like 
you know shooting in that game is kind of perfect for the 3d slider yeah yeah. Um, but also you have the uh the two zelda games of course ocarina of time and majora's mask and both got like a frame rate upgrade for um uh for the 3ds and also i think the textures were a bit nicer as well did you have any thoughts on these i mean you know beautifully made things um i mean it kind of makes me laugh that literally the highest rated game on 3ds is a port of ocarina of time (laughs) which you know it's just like you can never ever escape the shadow of that game um they did some like uh, quality of life improvements, Strockery of time, with like the inventory on the touchscreen and things as well, which which was nicely done. I mean, they they were they were like amazingly made. I actually think like replaying more Ocarina than Majora's Mask, um, like it showed its age a little bit. Yeah. You know, it, it it seemed less alive to me. I could kind of you know see how it was all working a bit more, and I don't know if that's because I'm so familiar with the game. Or, but it, it didn't have quite the same like wow wow factor, I guess. Um, but yeah, it probably is the best version of that game. Yeah, you know, and the, the 3D was nicely done. Um, I just wish they'd. I know it's a big ask. I wish they'd done like big like orchestrated music for it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I want that of every Zelda remake. So <laughs> yet yet to get my wish. Yeah, I thought like like you say. I think they were. They they are sort of fundamentally the best versions of those games, but I yeah I have to say I never quite got the I don't think I ever got the buzz that a lot of people did out of seeing them pop up. I think and maybe it was because we were so focused on like trying to sell the new things, um, but I certainly don't remember being on the mag and being like incredibly excited to talk about that stuff because it, it felt you know. It, it felt almost easy to a certain extent, and we'd been so conditioned into seeing re-releases, and I know these were sort of better versions of those things, but I think the Wii set up a lot of expectations around Nintendo re- doing re-releases that it didn't feel like a sort of a moment when they came out to some extent. Mm. Um, mm. But certainly, like, a great way of getting new people into those things, um, and, like, a lovely... I think, you know, it's a lovely after effect that a lot more people will have played those games um, who might be younger. But yeah, I'm not the... They they, are, they aren't what define the 3DS for me. So Joe, we've got a few of your suggestions here. So mm. um, SteamWorld, Dig and Heist. This is a series that kind of like blossomed on 3DS and kind of exploded elsewhere eventually. Is that the case? Yes. Yeah. So this is... Um, I, I have a huge fondness for SteamWorld and it's partly tied in with covering it on O&M because I remember... So, as it turns out, there was a SteamWorld game on DS, or the DSiWare, which was SteamWorld Tower Defense, um, which I think got quite good reviews, but it was bastard hard. Like, horrible. Um, and <laughs> and for whatever reason, they decided to stick... Uh, this is a Swedish studio called Image Inform, who I think were making licensed games mostly at the time, and then decided to kind of try their own thing. Um, and SteamWorld Dig... I remember, I specifically remember Matthew passing me the code and being like, I'll just have a look at this. But, you know, maybe we'll give it a third of a page on a, on the review. And I remember starting it and just within about 10 minutes being like, we have to give this at least a page review. Because it is, it's a, Dig is like a really sort of sumptuous, interesting, mini Metroidvania-esque thing. There was some, basically you are a robot who digs into the ground and as you go further down, the ground gets harder so you have to pick up more uh, upgrades so that you can get further into the ground. And there's a sort of a vague mystery about 
why these steam-powered robots are here and what's happened to humans in the world because there are these sort of drunk <laughs> idiots under the uh, <laughs> under the earth who were, appear to be the last vestiges of humanity. And so there's all this kind of like neat little neat little setup, but it's just it's it's almost like pure game design. It's just they had one really solid idea and they carried it all the way through this sort of eight-hour game, uh, and, and, and I just loved it. And then because of a, I think we were one of their first reviews and we gave it a very good score, and the the studio ended up really liking us for that. And so I remember yeah. getting a call from um, Brian, the the CEO, and him being like, "We can't." do anything with this yet but i really want to tell you about our next game and i was like okay and it was and i was expecting him to say steam world dig 2 we're doing this and this and this he goes we've made a 2d XCOM, and so steam world heist was this like i i think it's genuinely incredible it's they made a, a as he said a 2d XCOM, but built on the idea that your shots aren't uh they aren't randomized they aren't mathematical you literally point the gun. There will occasion some guns have lasers, some don't, and you have to take the shots. Um, and it just turned it into this like really tense, smart uh, tactical game. Really nicely mm. put together. Really compact levels with lots of choices, lots of decisions to make. You only had a three-person squad, but there were about ten or eleven, I think, different. Uh, characters to choose from so you were really messing about with how all those things slotted together and again just just a game built on one incredibly solid idea just pulled all the way through it and i think steamworld since i think has got you know a, a, a pretty hefty following out of this stuff and they did a really good job of porting to everything else but mm. it really those first two 3ds games really really took you know kind of took us by surprise and i, I just loved writing about them and i still do they've got They've got a really charismatic um, kind of studio head, mm. and he was like he was like big into her, and then we had quite a decent relationship with him, mainly well specifically through Joe. But he used to write these like really mad emails yes. about how he was building weird shrines to Joe and things <laughs> like that, which always used to make me laugh. I will say that didn't affect coverage. All right, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yes, no, it was, no, no. but he, like they are. I, I think they're really. I still, you know, I still talk to them. They're making a game called The Gunk for Xbox Series X now, which I think yeah. looks really good, um, or at least sounds yeah. really uh, good. A, re- a really nice success story in that they had this really, like, singular vision and just kind of pursued it and, you know, did brilliantly with it and, like, have made great games. Yeah. Uh, and now, weirdly, like, have, uh, are just a huge company. They now run distribution for Nintendo in, in Sweden. Which is oh, right. completely <laughs> wild. Like they just got like, and SteamWorld is the is the thing that kind of got them all this stuff. It's it's fascinating. It's a, I think it's a real, really interesting sort of indie indie story through the, especially on 3ds. Mm, great shout! I just feel bad it neither of these made the top ten. Um, so Street Pass isn't something we've discussed much, but um, Joe, you suggested Street Pass Mansion here. Did you want yes. to talk about Street Pass a bit generally as well? Yeah, we should. Street Pass is uh, I, I'm. I think more than anything else from 3DS to Switch, I miss Street Pass. It was such a lovely idea. It's this, I think it's, is it near field communication or is it some other, you know, I don't think it's thing? exactly that, but yeah. So the idea being you carry your 3DS and in idle mode, it will be able to communicate with other people's 3DSs that pass it in the street. 
um, and you would swap me's and those people would visit your plaza and, and just say hello. And on the basic level, it's just that. But they built this suite of games specifically for it. Uh, and of the, to, I mean, to me, Mansion is is the one. But it, so Street Pass also integrated with a lot of specific games. So uh, mm. the one that really sticks out, it, people did interesting stuff with it. The one that really sticks out is Shovel Knight, which is a game I'm not hugely fond of. Um, but its Street Pass implementation was really cool, which was anyone else who had the game, you would record uh, essentially half of a fight in an arena with Shovel Knight. So you would be trying to get some gems and also hit the other person. But you're fighting no one. But every time you Street Pass someone with it, their mirrored version of that same fight would be passed to your thing and essentially slot together like a puzzle and you would just watch these two people trying to have a fight with no one and seeing if they could beat the (laughs) other one it was really cool um but the real kind of the heart of street pass really was was in its in its bespoke games and mansion was one designed by probe which is yuji naka's studio uh who's Mm. most famous for uh, sonic and it was... For me, Eugene Acker is most famous for getting very cross with me at E3 because I was in front of him in a queue to play Luigi's Mansion 2. Oh, amazing. And I took too long doing the demo and he was genuinely, like, I could hear him huffing behind me. You know, when someone's trying to make their displeasure known, they're like, huh, <laughs> and, like, looking at his watch in an over-exaggerated way. I mean, that does feel like you've purposely done that to him because he invented Sonic. No! <laughs> Maybe he's like Sonic. Maybe he likes to do everything at incredible speed. But I was playing that demo at a normal rate uh he was uh but you know to me genuinely as someone who is not a fan of sonic street pass mansion is yuji naka's greatest accomplishment uh <laughs> yeah it's a it's a street pass game built around the idea that every so your me has a different favorite color and wears a different colored shirt and in mansion every me's color would give you a colored puzzle piece and you would be building a map uh this is another thing Matthew used to tell me off for is that I love maps and I talk yes. about maps too much, <laughs> but um, I, you would build this map out of these colored pieces and the, it's the same colors would slot together to reveal either enemies or uh, chests of different kinds. And you would have to like fill it's kind of like Tetris block bits of map basically. So you're sort of slotting it all together. And when you finish a level, you have a fight with a boss, you move to the next level and you start building it again. And it, it just, it consumed my time on commutes because I would be purposely trying to get as many street passes as possible, building levels in the most efficient way. Uh, and it, I just think it's like, it's a perfect use of a, a, a unique uh, bit mm. of technology that there's no reason for it to be there other than it's a fun thing to do. Uh, and it, and that's what sings for me. The the the, the time ar- around that of um, like e- going to E three and Gamescom or whatever, there was so much Street Pass going on mm. at E three and think like, like it gave the impression of three DS being like an absolute phenomenon because every like demo room you'd go into, you know, or, or wherever there was a big crowd, so many people have their three D three DSs out because. You know, at those events is where you could maybe get the Mies of like Miyamoto yeah. or Reggie or whatever. So everyone's just trying to see if they'd street past, you know, someone famous from Nintendo and um, like people obsessing over the street pass puzzles as well, where you swap puzzle pieces. And there were loads of those things. I mean, I don't know if there were hundreds by the end, but, you know, 
there was like such a constant update of things you could be getting and um like maybe we have a skewed version of this from working in an office where most people had a 3ds but you know it was just great for that we were always kind of just collecting all this stuff i remember chris scullion was like the gold mine mm. of um 3ds puzzle pieces because he he just for whatever reason had collected the most so if you street past him you'd always get something new which was good um yeah it was fun like that was that was a i i missed that period that period I, I wish like switch had something similar yeah uh, when they announced the you know they they're remaking metopia that 3ds yeah. me based game i really thought when that first popped up during that that direct that that was them reintroducing street pass somehow and i was really excited uh, i just think <laughs> I, I genuinely honest I must have played more of Street Pass Mansion than any other 3DS game. I spent so <laughs> long in it. it. It was ridiculous. Uh, it was just a just a fantastic thing. It's a real shame that these games have basically lost to time now yeah. with the technology gone. Like, what a, what a shame. Because I, I, I never played any of the Street Pass games. It completely passed me by, even though I was carrying my 3DS everywhere and kept getting these kind of, like, coins or whatever um they tell you that to tell you that you've um been past people when mm. it was going on the train and stuff but like um yeah this is these are like nintendo published games that are just going to be gone to history they're just there'll be no way to play mm. them that and seems like a real shame again made by interesting studios you know i think the there was street pass garden which on the on the kind of face of it wasn't very interesting but it had this you would get different plants from different people then you would have to cross breed plants and there was like almost a sort of like long form strategy element to it of how you were going to who you were going to pass and what you were going to get from them and that was made by Grezzo who usually make uh ju- they did the the Ocarina of Time port and stuff like that they they do kind of smaller side projects for Nintendo and I liked that they were giving those opportunities to to smaller studios to try out um yeah mm. and we, like you say it's not only hard to get them it's literally practically impossible to play them um mm. it's it's sad um so i put down three more games here um from uh, stuff i played so codename steam i wondered if you two had thoughts on this this was like intelligent systems run at basically valkyria chronicles mm. um kind of like a you know or, or xcom i guess like a strategy game turn-based and uh i think it looked a bit janky on the 3ds because it goes for like full 3d visuals but an interesting game that you can almost always find for about two pounds now um from like retailers still trying to get rid of copies um but i thought it was like i thought it was it was pretty decent for what it was and one of the i don't know a few kind of not really deep cuts because it was nintendo published but i don't know one of the more interesting games on the platform it it was weird i remember e3 when they were promoting it they used to have um the way Nintendo did their E3, they had their big conference and then they had their stand, but then they'd have these sort of developer sessions in the evening, which were basically like they, they had a big, they hired out a room and it's where they'd have, that wasn't shown to the public. It was like a top secret uh, presentation on a game which probably hadn't been announced at the show. Um, and there was always a huge amount of buzz about what it was going to be. And that year it was uh, codenamed Steam. And yeah, it was, it was odd because it's a first party game, but I remember the guy who designed it was... I remember because I, I think he's like a a Polish guy who came to mm. Nintendo. Like he was quite just a, like an unusual presence on those kind of panels because normally it's all Japanese teams. Um, yeah, it was wild. Like I, I need to play more of this one. I'll I'll put my hand up and say I, I I never finished it, but I thought it was cool. I think this was this. I mean, this definitively was post XCOM, and I think a lot of people sort of saw it as 
hey, Intelligent are, you know, moving away from, or, you know, they're not doing Fire Emblem right now, they're doing an XCOM game. And it really wasn't that when it came out. But I, I, I do wonder whether that was a part of its sort of slightly lukewarm reception. Also, again, Codename Steam is such a bad name, particularly when the subtitle in Japan is Lincoln versus Aliens. And you're like, call it Lincoln, ver- call it Abraham Lincoln fights aliens, and it will sell twice as much. It's just so obvious. Yeah, I guess the flip side to this is they're not really that similar types of games, really, but they're they're close enough. Is um, you know, Mario Mario Rabbids, for example, is the mm. way you can sell something like this a bit more unusual. Yeah, um, but without any kind of like yeah pre-existing characters, all you, all you had was um, Steam was an acronym as well. Like, it's, yes, I mean. Yeah, it's it's like bad game title 101, really. Um, so, yeah, a couple more I wanted to mention. Uh, Theatre Rhythm, Final Fantasy, and Curtain Call. Um, there weren't as many kind of like rhythm action games on 3DS, if I recall, as there were on DS. It felt like that was partly because the genre as a whole had died off a little bit over time. Um, I've got a bit a few knowledge gaps there, so though, uh, guys, so maybe I'm yeah, wrong that, about that. But um, I thought it was yeah, quite a that, nice, a Wendany kind of like, you know, follow the Final Fantasy music sort of game. Mm. Yeah. I remember playing it and thinking, wow, a lot of the Final Fantasy music sounds the same. <laughs> <laughs> like, when you get it pushed together like that, there's, there's you, you know, it's obviously the work of one bloke. A lot of it's the work of the same guy and there's a lot of similarities, but it was quite a luxurious thing. Like, it was quite, it had really nice production values. Mm. It's basically just like a, a big kind of, um, you know, expensive piece of final fantasy's fan service um on yeah. a platform that had very few final fantasy games <laughs> yes. and like basically none of the games that were like included within uh theater rhythm itself um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is quite unusual but um yeah i quite like that one um and finally matthew just to spite you i'm mentioning the um one uh kingdom hearts sorry the one 3ds game that i actually reviewed um when i was working in media which was kingdom hearts dream drop distance 3d do you get it matthew do you get it yes i think it took me about two years to realize that <laughs> I genuinely haven't I, I i remember being like oh my god that's what that means that's why they've given it this nonsense name yeah there's truly no stopping tetsuya nomura but mm. um I thought it was worth mentioning because it was the production values on it are really high. Like it's got full voice acting and um, a lot of the kind of like handheld Kingdom Hearts games sort of recycled worlds you'd been to before. But this had a lot of like all new worlds and uh, new music and stuff like that. So it was a it's a proper kind of like big 3ds effort. Um, I gave mm. it a seven out of ten though because I think this marked the exact point that my brain had tuned out of Kingdom Hearts lore and being able to like tolerate it and. I was like, oh no, I'm a man now, and um, <laughs> I must, uh, yeah, I must play man games. Um, yeah, that was kind of my uh, memory of that. But um, yeah, th- thanks guys for sharing your memories. Is there anything else that kind of comes to mind you sort of wanted to mention before we move on to the top ten? Oh, I think we've done quite a lot. I, yeah, I, I can't think of many other things. I think the one thing I would like to talk about, and it's the reason it wasn't on any list, is because I cannot remember what it was called. But I do remember a 3DS game coming out in which it was entirely vehicle-based, but it was kind of do crazy things with vehicles under the vague idea that there's a story for doing any of this. And one of them started with parachuting a school bus onto a, onto a road and then like doing a bunch of stunts. I think it was called something like Crash City Mayhem. And it... Oh, yeah, that rings a bell. It was yeah. really odd. And... It kind of speaks to this, like, like 
the B tier of 3DS. So, you know, significantly less money put in than anything else. But just all these odd developers trying to get one hit by doing something completely odd that maybe was perhaps was cheaper on to develop for 3DS or something along those lines. But it really sticks out in my memory as just one of these things that came along. I think we reviewed it and it didn't come out for about eight months afterwards. Uh, and and so I ended up just talking about it on the po- on the official Nintendo podcast a lot. Uh, and yeah, it was just it's I th- I think that's I think that's what I like about 3ds. It kind of sums it up for me. It's this this like bizarre place where people would just try things and then inevitably give up on them. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just. I- Looking at images of it, it looks like I know it looks like um, if EDF was a car game or something. Yeah, um, so it was called Crash City Mayhem. I haven't looked at this for years. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it was completely odd. Like it, it looked all right for a 3DS game as well. Um, hmm. But yeah, it's uh, it was really really strange. And I think you're right, EDF, <laughs> but a car game is a, is a very good way of putting it. Yeah, what if EDF had no insects? Um, yes. Would it be a better game? That's uh, no, it's um, it's that's quite an interesting looking thing actually. Like it, pure five out of ten oh, kind yeah. of drivel, but um, exactly the kind of thing I'm gonna I'm gonna buy on eBay after this episode to be, is finished. Nice. To be fair, I I agreed with you. I think I gave it an eight, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that might have been you know O and M madness. No, it's fair enough. Um, I guess something was uh, amiss in the drinking water at the time in the future's London <laughs> office. Um, Yeah, thank you very much for sharing your memories, Jen. So we'll take a brief break and come back with our top ten. Welcome back to the final part of the podcast, and in this section we're going to count down the top 10 3DS games. So, the process basically worked where we all made top 10 lists of games on the 3DS, put them together with a kind of point-based system, and then uh, Matthew tossed all that out and made a list that he was happy with, and that's the list we've got here. Um, (laughs) That's not entirely true. It's um, a couple of bits that Matthew's sort of like uh, manipulated into the list, but uh, it's otherwise like pretty reflexive. See if you can guess which. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I, I didn't know that that had happened, and I can immediately see the <laughs> see the points on the list where this is definitely Matthew. <laughs> yeah, this is all. Ha- I mean, I have only spotted like the most egregious part of this in the last five minutes, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't on there yesterday. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, I'm sure it'll be good. Um, so let's kick off then. Number ten is Castlevania: Lords of Shadow: Mirror of Fate, which is a a game that we brought up on the last podcast, actually kind of like smushed between the two Lords of Shadow game that came to console. Um, and I, I really rated this at the time, but I felt like the Castlevania fan base in general wasn't as into it as they were the DS games that had launched a few years earlier. But yeah, um, yeah like uh, talk me through it, gents. Why is, uh, why is this actually better than people think it is? I think I, I looked back at this because I, re- I gave this a very high score for O&M. I thought this was brilliant i really enjoyed it and i look back and it got a very mixed reception um and i look at it got a 4.5 on IGN. i know it's it's ludicrous um but the uh i i kind of i look at it and i look at the reviews and so many of them are about what it isn't they all want it to be symphony of the night just because it's a 2d castlevania game when actually what mm. it is is like 
a very good, very stylish uh, 2D action game. It's like it's probably the best out and out action game on 3DS, and which isn't you know a huge. Oh, it it's a not a crowded huge tool, field, <laughs> but I think it's a genuinely good one. Like it, it stands up alongside other action games. You know, it's it's not hobbled too much for what it's on, um, and I think it's just I think it's gorgeous for a 3DS game as well. And it just does a lot of very interesting things and, and again, speaks to a mindset from developers where I think 3DS was the place that they would go and try something else. There was a there was a, another game which was Batman Arkham Blackgate, I think it was called, which was a yeah. similar idea, much less successfully done. But I liked the idea of these big franchises coming and trying something else quite weird uh, and quite different, but still, but not, uh, not in the old licensed gamey way of like, we'll just make something that's called the same game but it's a fundamentally different game like they had a different story it was a sequel yeah there's some good stuff in there i think you know you could always trust konami and capcom to like throw quite a lot of money probably because of their good ties with nintendo um at their games this had amazing production values Mm. um and brilliant 3d you know it's a 2d game fundamentally but it's it's one of those sort of 2.5d worlds mm. where you know it kind of leads in and out i mean the art design on it's fantastic i really really rate lords of shadow one um which mercury steam made this is also mercury steam like i just felt like this was a studio that was incredibly proud of the series it was making didn't want a weak link in there um so they really poured in a love it's incredibly cinematic in in the way um it tells a story in a way that like isn't very Nintendo at all. Like it's very flash and very like God of War in a way. Like imagine a two D God of mm. War, I'd say. Um, but it had like boss fights that would kind of like you know massively change the environment and turn into these crazy quick time events. And um, it had this sort of interesting time structure where you played the game as several heroes at different times, and it meant that the story didn't make entire sense until you got to the end and you saw how it all added up. Which maybe wasn't like an absolute like. You know, there wasn't any like shocking revelations or whatever, but it did some nice stuff. There was like one particular boss who you like fought in every mm. time frame, and kind of how you dispatched him, and in the previous time frames, kind of changed his form. So there was like less of him every time, and he was becoming more machine than monster, and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, just very satisfying. I actually played a bit of this yesterday on PC because they did the they ported it to consoles and PC as Mirror of Fate HD, and like it loses a lot in not being 3D. Mm. Like, I I think the wow factor of this is when it's on 3DS. Um, So if you are going to play it, I would would advise trying to find the 3DS version rather than trying to play the console PC version, you know, and to get the same effect. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Joe, that, like, um, what it isn't is part of the reason the reception was cool here. But I also wonder if there's an element of, like, people were... People didn't really mind... Lords of Shadow was a legit good game, but people didn't really mind someone making a 3D Castlevania because the series' legacy, its best days, were never in 3D. And therefore, Mm. I think people were a bit more receptive to it. Here, I think people thought like it was a Western studio infringing a bit more on something that was, you know, kind of sacred to that audience. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that was part of the backlash, but... uh, Yeah, 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 probably. I mean, it is, you know... 3DS is the weird period where Konami stopped making those traditional 2D games. Mm. Um, What's-his-face? Um, is it Igarashi? Yeah. Um, who made them, had left at this point, and he obviously comes back later with Bloodstained, but, you know, 
everyone was starved for this. I think like the big Metroidvania revival hadn't started happening at this point either, mm. um, so people were particularly hungry for it. But taken on its own terms, it's a very good game. I was going to read the little bit from the... Oh, I've got the O&M uh, directory oh, yeah. for these games. Cool. Um, it's, it says, Fluid combat chains itself to classic Vania for some of the best portable action ever. Once you've seen a man eat a demon and sprout wings, little else matters. <laughs> there oh. you go. That's the O&M verdict. I love it. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's a little rush of nostalgia. Yeah, I've, uh, I've nothing more to add to that. It's perfect. Um, number nine then, Matthew. Uh, sorry, I should have said Matthew there, but this is uh, I'm giving the way of the game a bit here. But Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Um, a game I don't remember being on the top ten uh, two days before we recorded this. <laughs> And yet, uh, um, talk me through it. Uh, listen, I'm putting this in. This this was one of my highest ranked games in this list. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pure fan service. Um, marries two things which were really important to me throughout my time on Nintendo Mags, which was Professor Layton and Ace Attorney. Um, Professor Layton had actually had a bit of a bad run on it on 3DS. The two 3DS games are two of his weaker ones, I think. Um, was it yes two yeah and then the fourth one was yeah that's right um, and at this point Ace Attorney hadn't really made much of a comeback either um, this was exciting because it was the original creator of Ace Attorney Shutakumi was writing it so he'd kind of come back to the fold so that was a great relief because he'd been away since Apollo Justice um, it was made by Level Five who kind of at the time you know for a lot of endgamer and O&M, level five were like an absolute powerhouse mm. i think they're a bit diminished now or they haven't had a, a hit in recent years but people forget that like they're about as big a success story as japanese studio had like there was a long time i was absolutely convinced the head of uh level five would one day become the head of nintendo <laughs> um <laughs> Because he was—he just had the golden touch. He came from a very similar, like, creative background. You know, he—he he was a game maker turned studio head. Like, really, uh, you know, uh, 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 he knows his name. He's, uh, uh, you know, he just—he was making hit after hit, more on the DS on th- than on 3DS. But so it had the, it had their kind of like incredible kind of production values. Um, the mashup of these two worlds is so fun. The way that it, like plays the classic Phoenix Wright music, but it's all played on, like, accordions, like in Professor Layton. I mean, that's the real reason that's on this list. (laughs) The soundtrack is one of my favourite things in games ever. Um, And it was so... It was just so cleverly done, the mashup of these two worlds, um, the way Professor... uh, Basically, Phoenix Wright found himself in the kind of mystical bullshit of um, Professor Layton and vice versa. You know, it was really, like, two worlds colliding... You know, Professor Layton trying to solve, uh, find the logic in a kind of world of magic and witchcraft, and uh, Phoenix Wright trying to uh, prove things in a world where, like, magic and, and seemingly impossible things could happen. Um, 
some people are super down on this game. Like they feel like it's not a great latent game and it's not a great right game. Um, I partially agree on the latent side of things. It's like not the strongest latent puzzles ever. I actually think the courtroom scenes with right are excellent. Like it introduced this mechanic where you have like group testimony and you have to turn the different um, testimonials against each other. A bit like in LA Confidential where he's the two, um, he has the t- different dudes in the different interrogation rooms. Um, that is really upselling it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this just, uh, like, a, a, a great, great thing. Um, I, you know, I have very fond memories of doing this on O&M. We put it on the cover. Um, I was amazed we were allowed to put it on the cover. That issue had loads of Phoenix Wright and uh, Leighton stuff in it. Had a really funny back page about Professor Leighton solving mysteries in other Nintendo games which was super dark. I don't know if you remember I that. I don't too. remember that. What was that? So it was all like Professor Layton turns up in other Nintendo games and then reveals how those worlds are actually sinister. <laughs> so there was this thing about like him turning up in Animal Crossing and it was like, Professor Layton, I've, uh, I've been made the mayor of this town. I don't know why. And I'm digging up these fossils and they made me plant this tree. And Professor Layton's like big reveal was... Um, like, oh, you're an amnesiac serial killer, and and you're pu- as your punishment, you've been sent back to the t- the town where you killed loads of people. You've been forced to dig up their remains, which were the fossils. Uh, they've made you the mayor in this like weird power play, and the tree you planted is the tree they're going to one day hang. Oh you my on. god, yeah, I do remember that. So, uh, yeah, Black Mirror was big at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, but like. I love that that was in official Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got yeah. the, the Leighton Phoenix Wright thing also gave... Uh, I'm not sure it was a running joke, but it was certainly a joke we made a few times, which was that it was incomprehensible to me that not everyone who faced Professor Leighton was screaming because this man with a tube for a head had turned up. Like, everyone in that world <laughs> is a normal-looking person, yeah. except this one dude with weird black eyes and a long head. Uh, it was really weird <laughs> that he was there. They made no attempt to make him look like anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Was that also uh, the issue of the magazine where you interviewed Shutakumi? It was the second one, yeah. Because yeah, that yeah. that, that's one of my favourite bits of Matthew writing ever. If, if people can track down really old copies of a dead magazine. Um, it, like that, the, the interview you did with Shutakumi, which, you know... You're a massive fan, but you're also like very, very well up on you know crime fiction and and that stuff. And I think your discussion along those those lines is is like one of the best things that was ever in O and M. It was so so yeah. good. That's the stuff. Mm. Joe gets it. Yeah, <laughs> that is actually um, preserved by the web archive, isn't it, Matthew? Because um, we linked it for our interviews episode. I th- oh. I think that one's actually that's the first Shooter Kumi interview ah. we did. That's what I've been trying to find. It is there. I'll find. I will find it some somehow. Mm. No, that's uh, good stuff. Joe, did you have any take on this game? Was um, Phoenix Wright and um, Professor Layton were they sort of part of your you know 3ds kind of world? I guess. Yeah, I really like Phoenix Wright. Professor Layton has never been my thing. I, I I very much left this one to Matthew at the time. I, I played enough of it to kind of go. This is you know there's smart ideas and I do like like weird crossover stuff like this. But it was never it was never something that sort of became part of my 3ds canon for want of a better term it wasn't it wasn't my uh wasn't my bag necessarily um, one thing i did want to kind of also crowbar in here and just give a little shout out to was the second ace attorney on 3ds spirit of justice is genuinely outstanding game as well like 
it's not a Shooter Kumi game. And I was I liked Dual Destinies, which was the first one mm. the team did. And I thought, well, it feels a little bit like a tribute act. But I think I actually think the Spirit of Justice is as you know stands with some of the Shooter Kumi games. It's probably my third favorite Ace Attorney game. Mm. Um, so that also comes recommended mm. well then um, matthew actually i was looking at the spreadsheet and you're right you did you did get this into the top 10 so i was uh, wrong to call you out there you didn't manipulate the process <laughs> yes um you've been absolved i think you're i would love you to dig out your um professor layton solves crimes in nintendo games feature because um i think your little narrative there about animal crossing is gonna like haunt my dreams um, <laughs> uh, it's like yeah, a silent the, hill storyline every latent game ended with a big twist you know, like a really mad twist, and, and yeah, that was our attempt to, to. I can't really remember the other ones. We'll have to do an episode on back pages. Well, I, mm. I genuinely, I was going to say, probably off air. I'm surprised, given the the name of this podcast, that that hasn't already <laughs> happened because yeah. there's some good stuff on back pages. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's on the cards, I think, for maybe like three or four weeks from now. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> so we'll finally uh, launder some of that content. But um, Matthew, just to close out then, why don't you talk us through the, what the directory says about uh, this game? Uh, this one, it says, This is less collision, more collusion, as two masters of mystery aggressively point their way around a classic Takumi tale of murder and maths problems. Mm. That's great stuff. God, a lot of uh, nice alliteration there. Brilliant, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's good these entries. I mean, I say that after two. There might be eight absolute shiters after this, but <laughs> <laughs> let's find out. Um, number eight then is The Legend of Zelda: A Link Between Worlds, uh, a Zelda game that Matthew has slammed on this podcast multiple times. Yeah. Um, not not really, but like um, uh, you know, it's not one of your favourites, Matthew, is it? Uh, no, but it's st- still like. Lesser Zelda is still better than most things. So yeah, you know. I've been I've been seething listening to the podcast and hearing Matthew constantly do down Link Between Worlds because I think it's absolutely wonderful. I I I think it's such a I think it I think it's very easy to say that it presages some of Breath of the Wild's ideas, and I don't think that's necessarily like I don't think it's as direct a line as some are, some have drawn, but it certainly represents uh, a moment where the Zelda team really started messing with the the idea you know the kind of what became the set idea of what a zelda game was i think it's easy to you know to to have an idea of like oh zelda started as this and it was this the whole time and actually it's been a lot more you know variety led than than perhaps people think but i think link between worlds was was a very conscious attempt to go like let's just try something else and see how it see how it works and I know I'm assuming Matthew, we, you haven't spoken about it on here too in depth, but I'm assuming it's the rental system that doesn't work for you. I think yeah. So just just to explain the rental system, it's you you can you basically rent the items instead of finding them in the dungeons, and then you can tackle the dungeons in any order. It's basically mm. the kind of the hook of this game. My problem with that is I f- I feel like to accommodate that. The whole game is like very like one note difficulty wise. I don't think there's any escalation to it. Um, like I, I just fa- I found it all a little bit too simple, mm. um, which is the downside of that that kind of design is that there's no sense of oh wow like I'm really hitting the kind of the the, the exciting stuff which I which I do get from other Zelda games. Mm. Um, that's my big beef with it. To me, to me the rental system I totally get that, and I think it I think it also makes some of the dungeons a bit one note because you. They can't design them to involve multiple items in as you know in as in depth a way as 
these kinds of Zeldas often do. But what really works for me is there's this whole separate ability where you can merge into walls and become essentially a moving, a living cave painting of of Link. And those puzzles and the kind of 3D elements of those puzzles really worked for me. Like, I, I had such a, a nice time sort of navigating this. It feels quite... um. It feels quite pointed that that you know they're introducing like literally two D elements into their three D game and and how that how that played out and I just I really enjoyed the I really enjoyed them playing around with with those kind of extraneous elements and sort of you know harking back to the older games while purposely messing with the structure of them I thought you know it's very clearly a riff on uh, Link to the Past so. I, I I had a a lot of fun with it. I, it's definitely tied up with how I played it as well. I played it all over one Christmas, and it was just mm. so. It was such a good Christmas. <laughs> I had such a nice time, and I remember where I was sitting to play it, and I remember getting to all the different you know major beats, and I just had such a good time with it that it's it's definitely tied so, up in some level of nostalgia. I, I feel you're trying to shoehorn Christmas into this list. Basically, what you rate here. <laughs> Is Christmas? Yeah, Christmas <laughs> is good. To be fair, um, but yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I remain a very big fan of this game. I think I, I'd love to hear. What, do you think it has any of that kind of? Do you think it represents anything about the Zelda team kind of moving towards Breath of the Wild, or do you think that's a stretch? Eh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like. A little bit in that in Breath of the Wild, you can tackle the divine beasts in the order, and it kind of freed you from, you know, well, it gave you all the equipment at the start, mm. basically. Um, so I kind of get that, for sure. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I find the link from the 2D ones to the 3D ones quite hard. To, you know, just they're, they're, the flow of them is so different, yeah. and the scope of them is so different. Um, don't get me wrong, this is beautifully made. It's really nostalgic, the... The kind of the way it taps into that world from Link to the Past is is obviously brilliantly done. Um, there's uh, there's like a tavern where they play like acoustic versions of tracks. Oh, yeah, that is good. I mean, that's that's like that stuff is. You should buy the game just to listen to those. <laughs> basically, um, I don't hate this game. I just I was just surprised because I saw recently. You know, there was a. Um, Oh, our old O&M friend Kate, in fact, did a big feature on Nintendo Life where she gathered together, like, all the top ten Zeldas from, like, every website mm. to create the ultimate top ten. And I was just surprised at how much A Link Between Worlds features mm. on those lists. Like, it is so highly rated. Um, and I, I like it, just not to that extent. A little bit of recency bias, maybe, with them. Um, Ma- yeah, yeah, maybe. It is, it is really well met. Like, it doesn't do anything wrong. That's... That, um, it's a weird one. Mm, it's okay. a weird one. I think I just like 3D Zelda more than the top-down ones. Like, I don't rate Link to the Past much. Going back to it and replaying it recently, I don't think it holds up particularly oh, well. I think, I think um, Link Between Worlds is a better game than Link to the Past, certainly, like, for me. But some Nintendo fans will kind of, like, you know, get pitchforks and whatever <laughs> for saying that. So it's that, I don't think that's a popular view. <laughs> um, so what's the directory verdict on this one, Matthew? The directory says... Uh, Link's new adventure in familiar surroundings is a beautiful mesh of old school ideals and new ideas. Top down, top game. <laughs> <laughs> That's mag. That's mag work. That's the kind of thing I miss. That's nice. Uh, what does the directory say about Christmas, meanwhile? Um, <laughs> anything about Christmas? Christmas? Uh, too much heartburn, but you might get a toy. <laughs> 
Wow. So very solid all around. Oh, that sounds... Listen, I'm not an improv master. That sounds... That sounds... That sounds more like the magazines I worked on, to be honest. Um, but yeah, um, good stuff. Uh, so our number seven is a game that, with my editor brain, I would probably put in the top three if I was like making a Nintendo magazine, just from how I know this game is perceived. So Fire Emblem Awakening. Um, Joe, you had this particularly high on your list. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah. it's uh, So yeah, Fire Emblem was a series, as as we said, that was kind of was kind of nowhere for Nintendo when this came out. And certainly... I had never really engaged with Fire Emblem before this. And I remember being put on the review and just just absolutely falling in love with it. It's it's such a smart... Like, I like a tactical RPG anyway. And this, I think often the scale of Fire Emblem battles is, is, a, is a really nice thing. You know, they don't... They want to throw a lot of enemies at you and they want to throw a lot of your units on the field. Like, there's no sort of skimping on that. And... It meshing that with the kind of relationship building aspects and Awakening had a really nice sort of mid-game twist where you would build relationships between uh, fighters on the battlefield by having them fight next to each other, which would give them stat boosts as they became friends and eventually in some cases they became lovers. And uh, Lovers? Yeah, and then, but then you're, you're... characters halfway through the game some of them would have children that used the uh used the traits of their two parent characters so you have this idea of like not just manipulating like it's not just a kind of dating game interest but there's a you know there's uh, there's a certain amount of like eugenics to it where you're like you're (laughs) breeding the greatest fighters you can after a certain point it's quite weird um but just a really strong really beautifully presented Fire Emblem game that takes like the classic ideas, they have this weapon triangle, which is essentially rock, paper, scissors, but throws in a lot of extra stuff, you know, magic, and there are characters who transform into dragons and like weird classes to play with. Uh, And then just like some really fun writing and and some really fun ideas about how to use uh, characters in a tactical RPG. So, you know, it's none of the XCOM stuff of like building faceless people or you know building personalities into otherwise faceless characters these these are fully formed characters with stories so uh there's one there's there's a character called donald i think he is who yeah is like a farm boy with a pot on his head and he's rubbish like when you get him he's awful and the first mission is literally keeping him alive because he's so crap that you have to like force your entire army to surround him to get him through this to get him through this battle the and then he's just awful. So when you get him, you're like, well, what's the point in him? And the idea is he's essentially the game's magic up. He's this... He, he he levels up faster or stats up faster than almost any other character in the game. So if you put the time in, he'll become basically the greatest fighter the world has ever known. And and his story arc reflects that as he gets more confident. And it's just it's a really nice mesh of like storytelling and stats and, and really kind of yeah interesting tactical thinking there's some great stuff in there and and you know permadeath also was becoming again i think because of xcom was becoming you know quite faddy in a way and it really worked here like the the characters of those of those those people that you're playing with when they die they die or or in some cases if story needs it they retire which is weird um 
But I, like, just even just some of the death lines stick with me. There's a guy, there's a giant man. I can't remember his name. Huge guy in huge armor that makes him look like a horse. And he, uh, when he dies, he's like, I hope someone remembers me because his whole character is that he's sort of invisible to people, and it's just. Fuck. I don't know what that's still in my head. Right. <laughs> so that's what good. I that's what I'm gonna have written on my <laughs> Someone remembers me. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It's just a brilliant game. Would you say though, um, Joe, this is better than uh, Fire Emblem Fates, um, which came later and it seemed to be like um this you know, Fates very much released when Fire Emblem had become a big deal again. Yeah. Um how do the two compare to you? Uh the games themselves always felt very similar to me. I must say I didn't put as much time into Fates and there were two of them, right? There was mm, Birthright they, and Conquest. Yeah, they did like the strange sort of Pokemon approach to it, and it felt a little to me like they were cashing in somewhat. Like it came out very quickly, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it never, it didn't. Something about it didn't have the kind of love of Awakening to it. Awakening felt like a passion project where everything had gone right, whereas Fates to yeah, me if- felt a bit like it's just you know we're making these games now. If if you read, I the, I think it's the Iwata asks for Fire Fire Emblem Awakening. There's a lot about you know, this is it. This is the this is your last go at Fire Emblem. If we can't make it work this time, we're not going to make any more Fire Fire Emblems. Um, and there's a sense of like, what happens when your whole thing's on the line, throwing everything at it. And you know, as I was saying earlier, I just I th- you can really feel it in this game. And like the start, you know, the art style really comes alive, and it just. You know, it takes a lot of stuff which was always there and was always good about Fire Emblem, but just really made it accessible and fun for everyone. And uh, just a, a brilliant example. I wish they'd do the same for um, Advance oh, Wars, yes. but there we go. Yeah, Advance Wars, which just bypassed the 3DS entirely, right? Like, um... yeah, and there was only the one on on um, D- that was that last one that was on DS, which was quite grim. The, Days of Ruin, yeah, the or something. gritty one. <laughs> Yeah, it was like it was the war was really sad, and you're like, mm. oh, and it is. I agree, <laughs> but it's it's not necessarily like the vibe I want for my Nintendo games. <laughs> I really want them to dismiss war. You know? <laughs> uh, what's the uh, directory take on this one, Matthew? Um, this one is. <laughs> this is definitely a Joe one. Is it? Fighting begets friendship, begets love, begets children, begets fighting. Imagine Circle of Life playing while humans punch each other on top of an atlas. That's this game. Yeah, that's definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's uh, there's so much promise in there. That This guy's going to have a great career. That's what I think. If I, was <laughs> I think this, uh, would, this would be on my... Uh, if I'd done the episode of like review scores we got wrong, this would be the one I did, because I think I marked it... I, I think I gave it a 9 or something, you know, something like that, or a 19. Yeah, you gave it a straight 19, yeah. yeah. And I, Looking back on it, I don't know what I was marking it down for. Really, like this should be up there in the 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 top the top for me. Mm. Uh, it, it does so much right. I think I just said it was like I don't even remember what I thought was wrong with it. It really bothers me that I gave it a nine. <laughs> Damn, you're making me want to do um, episodes of uh, game review scores we got wrong with like guests where they come in and like talk about Ooh. the ones they were uh, down on. Um, Get really sad. <laughs> uh, that's what we do on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I will now look out for uh, mentions of maps in every single piece you write, Joe. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. So number six is Animal Crossing New Leaf. Uh, this is one that I have played and can finally talk about in a bit more detail. So um, this, uh, I think, Matthew, allu- you alluded to this earlier, but like um, the Wii 
uh, version. City folk, was it? The Animal Crossing on Wii? Let's go to, yeah, one was maybe Let's Go to the City. Right, that's it. Yeah, so that was considered a very, like, also-ran Animal Crossing uh, that released not too long after the, um, the, the DS version did, which was, like, an enormous hit. The DS version of Animal Crossing was, like, was really good for the hardware for the time, but quite limited in what you could do. And uh, New Leaf, um, as you mentioned uh, earlier, like um, Cassio as the mayor in this town, and then you can kind of like customize the town. And um, the simulation got a bit more detailed. And there was also like a nice island you could go to and uh, catch some sort of tropical fish. Um, and it's like very all the Animal Crossing games kind of use the same base, but with the series, it's more about what did they build on top of it that wasn't there before to kind of give you more sort of stimulating things to do um, mm. when playing them. And this. You know, we have seen that the Switch version is is like the the apex of that. It's like basically the most complete version of this game, and obviously it's captured you know tens of millions of people's imaginations. But mm. New Leaf is a very important step towards that in like fidelity and um, the amount going on in the town. I really like the way that the um, high street would slowly unlock in this as you um, uh, kind of like kept playing, and the overall vibe of it was really nice. It's a, a beautiful looking game. Joe, you rated this one quite highly. I know, Matthew, you're not as massive an Animal Crossing. What did you make of this one at the time? Uh, I remember just thinking... So I had a really odd journey with New Leaf because we got... I don't remember how it came about, but we got a really early Japanese version. Um, And so (laughs) I remember Matthew giving me the, the job of playing Animal Crossing in Japanese... (laughs) <laughs> and trying to write about what I thought was happening. And so it's this really weird diary feature of like, a lion keeps coming to my house and shouting at me and I don't know what I've done wrong. <laughs> um, but So I ended up playing this. I think I, had th- I think I started this game three different times. I think there was Japanese preview because we did like an odd uh, uh, like video series on it. And then... Um, and then the, the the final version, and it worked. I really didn't mind starting over every time because, like you say, the the, the level of stuff it gave you um, to do compared to other Animal Crossings made it feel more, I guess, more game like than the previous ones, and particularly more mobile game like. I remember being really struck by how much of it felt like a game on a mobile that would charge you to do these things, or at least mm. like want you to kind of come back again and again to do this stuff uh but the kind of the price of admission here was time it's this idea of like you come back every day and you put in a shift and you'll get more and more stuff and like you say the high street unlocking i think is is the biggest example of that it that's all down to just engaging and it wants you to engage more and more and talk to people every day and and build relationships with them and like it's quite uh, it kind of manipulates you into wanting to spend more time in your town and be the best mayor of that town. Uh, and I, I just, I was just really impressed with how it took that basic Animal Crossing structure and turned it into something way more compulsive. Um, mm. And I think, uh, am I right in thinking this New Leaf had a new director, and I think she came in and, and put in like yeah, I think it was, it was a lot of different like thoughts. Pair of- it was it was kind of a pair a pair of them, and then she, she uh, I'm so bad on the names. Um, she then went on to direct the the Switch one, I think by herself. Right, but, that was it. Um, yeah, we definitely. I think Chandra interviewed them at some point. Um, I remember us having an interview. 
Aya Kyogoku. That's that's her name. Nasty. I've just had a look, and yeah, and I, I think there's, I think there was quite a lot. Again, kind of like Fire Emblem. It feel. I, I don't think Animal Crossing was in any way in trouble for Nintendo in the same way that maybe Fire Emblem was, but I think there was an element of we're going to roll the dice and try something different with this this time, and it it really paid off. Yeah, mm. I think again, if you read the, if you read the interviews, I think there's a lot of chat about we want to make this like a big universal like international experience like they really thought about what people reacted to you know outside of the japanese audience and a lot of the kind of tweaks came from that um i I remember there being talk talk on on that at the time um i did this is the most i've played animal crossing i thought i thought it was you know wonderfully made Um, problem is we did a diary feature in the magazine where the four of us would update it was me joe (laughs) um Gav and Chandra had like a diary of our four towns and the kind of running bit on mine was that I made a floor tile that was textured like tarmac and then I tarmacked my entire town um, and so it was just this like black hellscape and it, it was funny for screenshots in the magazine but just made it absolutely miserable to play um, so then I just gave up. I can't believe you used user-generated content to destroy the game for yourself. Yeah, basically. I think I think I used some other custom tiles to do it. It took me ages. I did a set of four of six custom tiles that when you put them together, it was a chalk outline of a body. Oh, yeah, I uh. remember that. Uh, it's funny, Matthew. Sometimes I think when things are like deliberately heartwarming, they kind of catch you on the wrong day and you really respond to it badly. Um and this feels like an example of that. Um, yeah. Uh, so what did the directory say about this one, Matthew? Let's see. Let's get sort of... I was just seeing if the diary was in this issue I had, but it's not. Um, it says, you'll live here, you'll holiday here, you'll make friends, get obsessed, cut down trees, and cut down anywhere in your way. <laughs> That's weird. What? Uh, you'll rule here, you might just die here. <laughs> Wow. That's Are we sure this one... wasn't the one for Fire Emblem? That's definitely one of the more bizarre. <laughs> that's someone getting really bored halfway through writing the directory. Yeah, that's like um, a bit of 8pm deadline madness there. Yeah. Um, I re- I recognise the same kind of approach in my own captions in old issues of PC Gamer. Oh, um, God, yeah. That's the second highest rated game in O&M. Yeah. So number five is Kid Icarus Uprising. Uh, a shooter that made... I kind of like remember thinking this is hand cramp the game but um also being extremely <laughs> impressive for a 3ds game so a game directed by masahiro sakurai and you know a kind of comeback for this uh relatively obscure at least in the west uh character but um a proper kind of like big budget nintendo experience um matthew you had this one highly too um fat is yeah, this your this, number one yeah this is my number one mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um, what was your thinking there uh i for me it's a definitive 3ds like 3d experience um the action is kind of a bit like space harrier kind of flying into the screen and you fly around in the foreground shooting into the background um it's just so obviously made for 3d the sense of perspective um they had lots of really fun like enemies and set pieces where giant lasers would come out of the screen and fire out at you um this is quite an like it's a very arcadey game, which is quite true to Sakurai and and kind of you know Nintendo kind of mechanically, but it's also like weirdly sort of cinematic in a way that Nintendo games very rarely are. Um, has a lot of like in-game kind of story events where like bosses appear and like there are twists and turns in the level. There's a really strange level where 
basically your soul gets transported into this tiny ring and then the ring gets eaten by a dog and you basically control different things as they touch this this possessed ring and it just felt like a set piece from an entirely different kind of game um i think uh sakurai you know he's he He's one of the Nintendo kind of creators who does talk more openly about his gaming habits. He's a column in Famitsu, and you know he'll talk about playing. He plays a lot of Western action games or whatever. And this is, this felt like someone kind of bringing in a bit of that kind of pizzazz, which was quite interesting. Um, I think it's really interesting in that it's a Sakurai game that isn't a Smash Brothers. I mean, and just shows like how uh, like. It gives you a better idea of like what his values are mm. because Smash Brothers because they're all quite similar. When you put this next to him and you see what does carry over and what doesn't, like the arcade sensibility, like just visually, like the menus and things, and this may be an odd point to make, but like the user interface has got a very distinct like bubbly style. Like he clearly has like a vibe that he's going for, and, and it's it's interesting to see that outside of Smash Brothers. It has one of the craziest difficulty systems of all time in that it has 99 difficulty modes. <laughs> um, uh, like, you literally scale it up by point increments from 0.0 to 10. Um, and, like, the hot, you basically gamble on the difficulty of the level. The higher it is, the better rewards you get, but mm. then the more enemies they are, and it literally just, it really scales up and swarms you. So you're trying to kind of push it as high as you can to get, like, loot drops. It's got this big, huge loot system where you know there there are like hundreds of different weapons you can get and then there's different kind of um stats attached to them based on the difficulty you collect them it's a really deep massive game surprisingly huge campaign as well um with a kind of quite a good early twist that takes it in quite a different direction and um also very funny uh it was localized by a, a stand up comedian who uh you might know on twitter mike drucker oh yeah mm. uh, who writes for like the the late night chat shows in America and the, the you know the, it's got great jokes like really poppy sort of it's going for that sort of Saturday morning kind of wisecracking vibe but it's genuinely laugh out loud funny some amazing voice performances um, particularly from the, the big villains of it um, they're really like satisfying things to go after the way they kind of goad you and and his like preppy kind of uh, pits kind of preppy sort of delivery is really really fun as well. Um, I just thought this was like just spectacular. Um, you know, visually, um, you know, so much replayability. I just really got into it. Uh, there's 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 several levels in this that give me absolute chills just from like production values wise, like the action and the the the, the camera work and the music is phenomenally good. Um, to have like it's such a love letter to something relatively obscure. I'd say in the grand and Nintendo kind of hierarchy, um, this is just something. You know, I'm not a big Kid Icarus p- person at all. You know, I like the the, the older game, but um, yeah, this was just. I, I think it just proves that what Sakurai's approach to games is is just he goes all out. Like the madness of Smash Brothers, the scale of Smash Brothers isn't just because it's Smash Brothers. It's just that is how Sakurai will tackle anything. Oh, please let him make something that isn't Smash Brothers. <laughs> And it doesn't have to be Kid Icarus 2. It can be anything. Give him anything, and he'll do something interesting with it. Um, yeah, I absolutely adore this game. 
hand cramps and all. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe, did you have any thoughts on this one? It didn't make your list, but I, was, I imagine it kind of, you crossed paths with it at some point. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I've played a minute of it. <laughs> I, it's one of the, it's a massive blind spot for me. I think it came, it came out before I joined the mag. Yeah, um, definitely. I was on Endgamer when this Yeah, happened. so it was never something, it was never something I had to cover. And I think mm. I just never got round to it. And and despite, and this is not to say that I don't think it sounds good. Like I've heard Matthew talk about it at length for for years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those things that I, I, I never got to. And it it does feel like something I would enjoy. But yeah, I, it's it's a massive blind spot for me. I'm afraid that's a be- oh. you know boring answer for get this. It, get but... a pre-owned copy. It holds up. Yeah. I was playing some of it this week. It's it's brilliant. This did really make me want to do it. I I forgot about the the kind of loot element to it and that really that really sells that concept for me the, the kind of the gambling with the game uh idea mm. is, is really cool mm. yeah i'd actually forgotten about i haven't played this for nine years obviously but um i i had forgotten about that system too you mentioned it matthew and that that feels like something that's quite similar to how you scale the um ai and um smash bros as well like mm. you say that yeah, kind of commonality yeah. between the two um, mm. Yeah, no, I I I feel like this game just maybe just came out slightly too early to get the attention it deserved on 3ds. It was as the 3ds was getting like a momentum, but um, I don't know. I'm sort of I still feel like it sold like over a million copies, but I don't think it was like a mega seller. Mm. So um, yeah, yeah, and it was cause it came with that weird stand as well, which didn't help it. <laughs> it it, it, oh, sort yeah. of se- it sells itself as like I'm going to be a pain in the ass <laughs> when actually it isn't really. Like it's it's relatively. Um, so sleek in terms of you know it's controlled entirely with a shoulder button the analog stick and the stylus which is why you have to hold the console in one hand and why they put in the stand but like i've i've played this loads and got around it you just i don't know it works eventually hmm okay what was the directory verdict on this one mr smash brothers sakurai uh excavates nez's greek ruin reinventing the series as a blistering action spectacle. Mm. Factor in a millennium's worth of content, and this is a true angel delight. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Matthew write-up. I don't know if it is. I don't know if I would have said content. Oh, that's fair. Uh, But But then a true angel uh, delight sounds so much like you. That does sound like something enough that I'd write. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's good good mag writing. It is. Um, Yeah, top stuff. Oh. Uh, for those that don't know, he's an angel. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. It's not. We're, we're not saying he's like a weird sort of. You can laugh at it now. <laughs> he's not a powdered custard man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so number four is Mario Kart Seven. Um, I'm not going to like preface this one because I'm really curious to know what you two make of this. Um, Matthew, kick off. How does this fit into the Mario Kart canon? Yeah. Uh, I think this is a very 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 solid entry um i i think the reason i responded so well to this was because i i'd had that very bad experience with mario kart wii which i really don't rate uh despite rating it in the magazine (laughs) Um, (laughs) as talked about on our reviews from hell um i won't i won't go into that again uh this to this to me just felt like they'd kind of fixed all the problems there they'd scaled it back down they'd lost incredibly wide tracks that made we such a bust um i think the little things they added like the hang glider sections they're not like massively game changing but when they happen in the tracks they feel really nice like mechanically that hang glider is a very nice thing you know the physics of it the sense that you can like dive bomb down to the track or that you can kind of try and swoop down and use the physics to help you i will always 
take that over the um i much preferred that to like the transforming vehicles of the sega game which was quite similar where the car could turn into a plane but then it was like a plane section it felt quite different this this was more like it had little things that could happen which were like mechanically interesting for a few seconds which is all i really need because mario kart's pretty solid the rest of the time um it feels much more like mario kart ds i guess in terms of its like style of track and like the the visual style of it um maybe a little lightweight as a package like around the game like it's pretty slimmed down like mm. it's it's pretty much just these good tracks and uh you know a few bits of you know customizable stuff going on but um yeah i just thought i don't know, like a return to form i guess a, a return to the form of the ds game is probably my line on it yeah. how about you joe it, it always it didn't make my list and i think partly that's due to mario kart 8 just being so good um but it always felt kind of competent to me. Like, it did a really good job. It wasn't too flashy about it. And it it, it, it kind of... It just... it, it Like like Matthew says, like I think it brought back a really nice sense to Mario Kart. But yeah, it never kind of... It never blew my mind, I'd say. My, my abiding memory of Mario Kart 7 is that one of the first things I ever did on the magazine, for reasons I cannot remember, was played Mario Kart 7 in a giant bootleg luigi head we had in the office <laughs> with two like like sort of like racing babes who had brought come into our <laughs> office for some reason oh god who what was that was that was that an official nintendo i think thing? it was and like so there's this one picture of me in a big luigi head at a crappy table in future london with these two bored-looking women standing either side of me. I think you wanted to wear the head because you didn't want to have your... F- I think you just didn't want to be, be in the photo I with the babes. I genuinely think that was it. Because it just felt... I don't know what we were doing it for. I, de- I certainly didn't suggest being a part of it. That is very much... That's like the dark side of the staff writer life. Where someone... <laughs> like, if no one wants to do it, you fucking do it. Um, I love it. It's like, look, oh no, there are babes. Quick, get the disguise. Yes. Well, like... I just didn't want to be in it. It was so strange. And like the smiles on their faces in this picture haunt me because you can see they're just so angry to be there in their eyes. <laughs> like, it's it's awful. So maybe that's why it's not on my list. Wow, yeah. That is uh, that is not where I expected your opinion on this game to go. No, um, it's very strange. Yeah, I'm just... I, I, read, I would... Uh, now, I'm not going to make Matthew dig up evidence because I don't want people to have to see this photo circulated on the internet of oh, Joe. Because... It's somewhere on my Facebook. I'm sure I can put well, it up. <laughs> I just want to see what the sort of like the Luigi head looks like, oh, really. Oh, it's um, the worst. We used it all the time in the magazine and I'm surprised Nintendo let us because it, it it's... I, I don't know why it was there. Uh, it stank inside it as well. <laughs> it was awful. I think, I, think, I think Chris owns it. Does he own it? I think it was a birthday present oh that they bought for Chris Scully. <laughs> well, okay. It was very weird. That's good. I'll um, see if I can find it. I'll send it over. I like that in a, a certain era, um, every O&M photo shoot had like, uh, a bootleg Luigi head and Sesc Fabregas mask. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's quite an iconography. Um, yeah. My only thought on Mario Kart 7 is that um, I was so into the DS one. And I felt like this, by the 3DS, um, by virtue of the 3DS not being as successful as the DS, it never just caught on culturally in the same way. Um, and that's why 
I, I kind of was a bit cooler on it, I think, is I just didn't have a circle of friends who were playing this and, you know, that have that kind of lunchtime session thing or you meet a mate mm. and you, you know, go to a mate's house and just play it for a while. That was very much part of, like, the culture of the DS to me is I knew enough people who had, like, a DS with Animal Crossing and Mario Kart to have, like, a good two or three hour sort of session uh, locally. Um, and, yeah, I, that just didn't really happen on uh, with this one. So, uh, yeah. But um, what was the, what does the directory make of this one, Matthew? The directory says uh, it drops the Wii's blasted bikes for ace aerial and aquatic hijinks, all playing out on courses from the clever chaps at Retro. Retro? Yeah, they co-developed it. Oh, God, I don't even remember that. Yeah, I'd yeah. forgotten that too. Adding, adding private online lobbies makes this Mario Kart's tastiest online offering to date. Vroom. <laughs> Nice. Oh, that vroom. That's 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 a weak ending to that. That's that it that was basically filling a line. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, I can picture the blank space in my head where that goes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, in design and the <laughs> one cursor flashing and you just going, Oh for God's sake. You're like, Yeah, vroom. Just write vroom. <laughs> yeah, the thing about vroom is you can put as many O's in it as yeah. you want. <laughs> I think um, Retro Studios co-developed this because uh, this is one game where I th- I th- I think Nintendo rushed to get this out for that Christmas just to like get it out because they needed this and like Mario 3D Land, um, which you know we'll get to in this list. Um, those two kind of I think were very key in the turning around of the console generally in terms of people buying it. Um, so that's my theory of why Retro worked on this, but I don't know. Number three is Monster Hunter for Ultimate. So. Joe, this is number one on your list. Mm-hmm. You're a pretty, uh, it's pretty well known that you're a big Monster Hunter guy. Um, talk us through what this meant to you on the 3DS. Uh, for a long time, this was what I considered to be the best game ever made. And it was the game that really got me into Monster Hunter. I, I just, something about it clicked with me so perfectly. Uh, and I, I've, I've talked extensively before, but not, you know, I'm not expecting people to have followed my thoughts on Monster Hunter across the internet. But there's the the loop and like the design loop um of monster hunter just i i think is near perfect and this this game did it so well which is this idea that you have a series of bosses that you fight in a series of different ways with a series of different like instruments to do that that do that in like wild you know they they affect how you play wildly uh but it's all built on this idea of fight something, get materials from it, build something new to fight something else to get materials from it to build something new. And like the way it ties all of its stuff together is just seamless and it it carries you through that game on like a constant search for the next thing. And it really emphasizes um, like putting the time in, Uh, you know, it, it tries... I think this game actually in retrospect you know less so than the newer games uh, makes it a bit harder to kind of get interested in like the farming aspect of it but there is a really i spent a very long time in this game doing very mundane things and having a lovely time about it it's one of those kind of two-tone games where you can sit down and want to go and beat one boss and it will take ages and you'll feel amazing when you've done it especially if you do it with other people but you can also sit down and kind of have the TV on and do, you know, go and find all your herbs or go and fish for a while. And and it just accommodates those two states really well. And 4 Ultimate in particular is just, it's just gigantic. For a 3DS game, it is absolutely enormous. There is so much stuff in it. Um, like, 
I certainly never finished it, and I played hundreds of hours um, because you're just you're constantly given the next big challenge, the next big. Uh, you know, it t- these games always go into G rank, which is like super hard versions of monsters you fought with new abilities and new looks and and new equipment you can make out of them. And it's just oh, it's just wonderful. It, I, I just absolutely love these games, and and this was this was the one for me where I, I finally got it. I tried mm. Monster Hunter Three and kind of started to like it, but Monster Hunter's always had a problem with onboarding people, and you kind of need someone to walk you through it. And I had that with this with another friend. And we just, it was just fantastic. I agree with that. I like this had the, didn't this introduce the thing that you could pole vault onto people's backs? Yes, this, this was this was the first one where you could, yeah, where you could ride monsters. They've, they've changed that system about three times since. But this was the first one where if you were a normal weapon user, you could like jump off a ledge and land on a monster and just stab it in the back for a while before it threw yeah. you off. Yeah, I, I I think this is probably the Monster Hunter I played the most of as well. Um, I just think it fits handheld best, and I know World's amazing, but it's it's it'll always be a handheld game. Um, high hopes for the upcoming Switch one too. Yeah, uh, and the demos of that are, are very promising. But the um, it's also just the, I think it's always more impressive to see Monster Hunter in a handheld context, just because of how how lushly made it is the animations in these games the number of ways that these monsters can react and the number of ways you have to react to them and and you know there's 14 different weapon types that turn it into fundamentally different action games you know it's it's just uh, there's so much love put into these uh, that i think is often hidden behind quite a imposing face um but they Mm. are and a beautifully localized as well. The, the jokes really sing. There's so many cat puns. Uh, it's just uh, they're they're a labor of love. You can tell on like on every element of it. I, I, I think, that, and this one in particular just felt. If this was this to me was the moment at which Monster Hunter, the Monster Hunter team, I think started to realize how they could leverage a Western audience as well, and they really started pushing like how much stuff kind of. Uh, felt kind of they started to make it feel a bit more accommodating to people who hadn't followed the series forever. Uh, mm. It's just it's just an absolute masterpiece. Did you two play this together at all? I think we must have done, but uh, I definitely I had a group of people that I played with who were like all Monster Hunter people already, and they were the ones who kind of carried me through it to a certain extent. This didn't come out after O and M. Oh, it might have done actually because I think I reviewed this possibly for. I think I reviewed this for Games Master, or in my. I think I freelanced yeah, I this fe- one. I got a feeling this was just after I think you might be right. So it's not in the directory. <gasps> That's why. Oh no! Um, but Monster Hunter Three is okay. Do you want to go with that? And uh, we'll just, I just. I just like hearing yeah, these, uh, these little bits Mon- of text. Monster so. Hunter Three. <laughs> Monster Hunter Three Ultimate, obviously a different game, but the vibe's similar. <laughs> big, <laughs> big monsters, big world. Big bagpipe mallets, <laughs> tiny little console. Monster Hunter's always felt at home on a handheld, and it's just taken out a fun mortgage on our favourite one. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. A fun mortgage. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, yeah, we didn't even mention the fact that one of the weapons is a big bagpipe hammer. It's the best. Wow, to think I was almost going to consider not having you read out that directory entry, Matthew. Um, <laughs> what an error that would have been. What's a fun mortgage? Uh, that's a very that's a very confusing metaphor. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds like me. I'm afraid to say. <laughs> All right then. So 
We're on to number two, which is Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon. So I actually replayed the original uh, Luigi's Mansion on uh, 3DS. The port they did of that is really nice, actually, uh, a little while ago. And I, you get to the end of Luigi's Mansion, it feels like they've kind of done everything they can with that concept. It's not a very long game, but they sort of max out all the ideas they have. Um, and I think what I remember being surprising about this like much longer sequel is how, how many kind of like cool new ideas they build on top of it. Um, mm. So, Matthew, you're very fond of this one. Why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, like, I think you're right. It's the way they kind of grew the formula out, made made like the regular action of the thing a bit a bit more interesting it was less about the kind of sort of signature ghosts which luigi's mansion is about and just the general like minute to minute of this is a bit more interesting um a bit more like focus on puzzle solving uh there's like your multiple sort of mansions almost Mm. um i can't quite remember how it's structured but you go to like different worlds which are kind of contained um again uh, like I think a lot of this is the wow factor of just how amazing it looked in 3D. Mm. This was like a great 3D showcase. Kind of anything where you're peering into like a little room, the little 3D dioramas, and there were so many like interactive elements and sight gags and weird little um, kind of animation quirks. Um, I, I think having played the third one on Switch, I still think this is the best one. Um, for me, it just felt like a more natural fit, like the size of the game, the kind of complexity of what you can actually do sort of suits a little handheld adventure where you dip in and do a couple of rooms and then jump out again, um, where I think it felt it couldn't really sustain it as well on Switch. It didn't feel like something I necessarily wanted to sit down and play in front of the TV. Huge amount of character, um, a really nice little success story for Next Level Games as well, who made this. Um, as an external studio, just you know, really, really kind of pulling out all the stops and really delivering. Yeah, just a lot of happy, a lot of happy memories of playing this one. How about you, Joe? What do you, you've got this quite high on your list too? Yeah, I loved it. It's it, Matthew's kind of summed it up for me there. It's that the the doll's house feel of it on 3ds is so appealing. You know, you, you, as as you say, kind of peering in. It, it, again, it's that tunnel effect of this feeling of these tiny little bits of world and that they're and again yeah that there's so much to them that can be manipulated and it does more than any other game to make luigi feel like there's a point to him you know <laughs> like he feels so different <laughs> to mario in this and and he really you know he he's got this sort of um like not morecambe and wise what are they called <laughs> buster keaton type feel to him you know he's yeah. he's this lovely little ball of mistakes <laughs> that uh that you kind of mess around with and the way it kind of hands you a lot of control over him but then it will take it away in a moment to just be like here's a joke here's something really interesting or really funny to watch um that you're kind of out of control of but never too cutsceney it just feels like you're you're kind of guiding him around rather than controlling him um and yeah the puzzles were really fun that i think the multiple world worlds really worked i i agree the switch one it tried to do that by having the different floors, but there was something about having distinct mansions to go to and mm. like learning how each one worked was really satisfying. Um, and, it, and it kind of more steadily built up the mechanics that way. Uh, it was just, just a really lovely game and, and, and beautiful and just, yeah, I, I, I like how Next Level have kind of made it their own to the point where Nintendo have now officially bought them. You know, it, it felt mm. it feels like this was kind of their 
this and the Switch one were sort of their tests to be like, do you have what it takes? And they absolutely do. Uh, it's it's really nice. Yeah, I was um, curious, Matthew, what the directory made of this one was. Um, what was the score for this one in O and M? This got ninety two. I think I reviewed this. Yeah, you did. Yeah, Luigi wouldn't be the first person we'd call for exorcism assistance, but judging by his second solo outing, we'd have an absolutely brilliant time watching him try to do the job. Oh, straightforward. Nice, nice yeah. and happy, rather than weird and creepy like the New Leaf one. Yeah. No, like we're all going to die. Yeah. Even though it's about Just half these entries. <laughs> yep. Um, no fun mortgages this time. No. Um, yeah. Okay, so we've finally reached our number one, and it is Super Mario 3D Land. Um, Joe, I want to start with you on this one, because it's actually slightly lower down in your list mm. than um, me and Matthew have it. What do you make of um, of this uh, fairly... The first major Mario game to launch on 3DS, and maybe the only one, actually. Oh, no, there's the 2D 2D ones as well, but the only, yeah. like, 3D one. So uh, talk us through it. I have to say, this is kind of my Link Between Worlds uh, one, where, less to me, lesser Mario is better than most things, and that's why it's on my top ten list, but it's not one that sort of... Uh, that ever kind of really captured me in the same way. I think it's an amazing uh, utilisation of what the 3DS can do. And I think there's obviously brilliant Mario 3D thinking in there, but it never, to me, never quite hit the levels of. And again, you know, what comparing to Galaxy or anything like that is absolutely absurd. But it, it never quite hit the levels of invention to me that that make makes me think of it regularly in the way that I do the the greatest Mario games. But it is, it is just. I'm so glad that they tried and did this and that they succeeded with it because, you know, it proves that 3D Mario isn't bound by being, uh, you know, powerful or, you know, open world in that way. I, I love I love the thinking of kind of let's let's extrude how 2D works into a 3D context and use those kind of those setups. It's a really, really cool game. But yeah, I, you know, it would be better to probably hear either of you two talk about it, given that you rate it a little higher than me. How about you, Matthew? Um, we've kind of talked a bit about how you feel about this sort of subsection of Mario games. And, you know, you, like Joe, echo the thinking of how yeah. Galaxy is like the, you know, the top of the pile. But then what this does is still, it's still good. It's just, you know, you're comparing yeah. amazing things here. Yeah, d- definitely. I, I have a, a bit of that vibe about this. Um I'd say I feel this format works better on 3DS than it than it ever did on like Wii U or Switch for me. Hmm. Um like the sort of single player format of it, the the um just the kind of self-contained levels, you know, the of the obvious like power limitations of the 3DS. I don't know. It it it, it just it feels like a, a a more sensible fit. Um I think this game suffers a little bit in that it's best stuff is in the latter half of the game i think it takes a little while to get going um you know it's it's almost a little gentle um it goes back to that thing i've talked to before where nintendo had this real kind of chip on their shoulder that people didn't know or couldn't handle 3d mario which felt like a really strange concern considering like some of the most critically acclaimed games they've ever made have been 3d marios and they've been making them for quite a long time and then all of a sudden they suddenly got really worried that they were too difficult or too confusing, and that's why they kind of took this approach. That's massively paraphrasing it, but that's that's the general vibe. Doesn't have like the total explosion of ideas of a galaxy, um, but it feels really nice. I just it's it's a 
strange one. It's, it's very much like a, a nine out of ten for me. This one, but you know, I remember thinking, particularly with the three D ramped up, it it just all feels so incredibly sort of solid and and like very well realised. And that sort of sense of like physicality is so like vital to Mario. And I think that three D does definitely adds adds something to it. I wish there was less stuff about the. I really. I, I was looking back over this, and it made me think how little I care about Mario costumes. Um, there was so much stuff because this. They were quite big on the Tanuki suit in this one. Hmm. It was like back, and they made like a big thing like the Tanuki suit's back, and it was like this. I mean, when Mario puts a costume on, he becomes less interesting. I think. I, I, <laughs> like I he, totally know what you mean. I agree. Like he's. You know, it's like you know all those moves he can do. Well, he can't do them anymore. Because he's got this suit, which means he behaves in a different way, and it means he can do less. So, uh, yeah, but that's—I mean, that's that, uh, you know—that that isn't just on 3D land; that's on lots of them. But I just remember the 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 raccoon suit being quite a big element of this. Um, yeah, it's just—I don't know—it's—it's it's, it's just ch- very chunky, very solid, like beautifully made. I mean, you can't kind of criticize it on that level. As I've said many times before, you know, a kind of lesser Mario is still a a stunning game. Um, what what did you make of this? Because I think you, I think you like this a little more than I do. Yeah, I'm very fond of these um, these sort of uh, the, this 3D sub series. I think that the 3D effect of, of the console actually works perfectly with this game in a way that I feel like it it didn't for quite a lot of Nintendo's catalog. Ultimately, that might be because they changed uh, direction a bit. But for example, I didn't actually get much out of using the 3D in um, Ocarina of Time when that came to 3DS. Mm. But this, mm. with its kind of like almost isometric camera just uh, just kind of and like, kind of like the sort of blocky nature of some of the levels it just it feels they feel like quite chunky levels like it's like a duplo kind of sort of like a approach to the art design and those kind of like shapes and stuff just popped on the um with the 3ds uh slider right up mm. and um I, I thought that was great and also the fact that like the the kind of second set of like hidden levels in this uh, are just terrific as well and do finally like you say it takes a while to get going but it does finally reach that kind of like frantic um difficulty of like um mm. you, know, you know that you expect from mario in its latter stages um i would argue it's probably the nicest looking i i think it's the nicest looking game on the system as well it was a proper like i, I bought a 3ds bef- around the time that about three months after launch when it was discounted and it was that thing of there was a long wait for like you know big interesting games to come out but i remember just i played this that christmas again i'm kind of rating christmas here a bit but um just <laughs> That's okay this is a, this is a podcast that likes christmas that is okay <laughs> yeah i like you I, I understand why it doesn't have the same sort of like it doesn't have the same ambition as like a galaxy but it's a really nice compromise between 2d mario and galaxy i think particularly like mm. you say for a handheld like this um also this was the first time apart from the um mario 64 port on um on ds that they had done a 3d mario game on handheld right and so as a first kind of punt at that i thought it was incredibly impressive mm. so yeah i, yeah, I love no, it yeah yeah absolutely i had a very weird time reviewing this one because i i had the car and but i was on a weirdly i was on a call of duty three review trip because this was in the little period where I was in the writer's hub at Future, so I I occasionally got drafted in to do stuff for Xbox World and PSM3. Um, And so I was reviewing this in the evenings. I was playing this, like, while I was on that trip, staying in this quite strange motel. And so the daytime was just full of 
Call of Duty, you know, absolute extreme violence. It's the one with the the, the you know the bombings in mm. London and all that jazz. Um, and to go from that to this was just so jarring. A uh, very very strange experience, which I don't know if that coloured my feelings on the game. <laughs> Was there some Nintendo embargo weirdness with this one as well, where you couldn't talk about the second half of the game, the yeah, secret levels? Definitely. Oh. That's why all the reviews are like. It's quite funny going back to the reviews, seeing people try to talk around that. There's a lot of this chat of like, because the good stuff was in the second half, basically, where like they wanted you to think it only had like eight, you know, whatever, six worlds, or and then there were all these secret worlds where all the good stuff was, which is kind of the same with the Switch one, really. Um,. Actually, that's unfair. That gets better faster. Um, yeah, and you can see lots of people who are like, you know, but stick around after the credits, kind of <laughs> wink, wink. Hmm. And you're like, oh, I wonder what that could be. Could it be more levels like every Mario game? <laughs> I do I do like that 3D Land and 3D World have that. I can't remember. I think it was Brian Altano at IGN put it like, it, you know, they're both quite welcoming games in the early stages, particularly 3D World um, in co-op. And they both kind of have this moment of kind of going, all right, are the kids in bed? Because we're going to kick your ass now. <laughs> like it's, yeah. a, it's a really, I like that they they have their cake and eat it that way with, with you know, the early world's kind of accommodating you. And then by the end, you're just having a terrible time trying to get through it. It's, it's really, it's great. Uh, yeah. Or, or like mechanics where you think, oh, that's such a good idea. I wish they'd pushed it a bit further. And then you get to the end and there's like the nightmare version of that. And you and you end up thinking, what, what, you know, be careful what you wish for. I yeah, guess it's. It, I think I, I think they really they should be commended on that level. I, I'm actually I'm a much bigger fan of 3D World certainly than Matthew, but I think this this obviously lays a lot of that path. And I think there is something really nice about them, uh, yeah, testing testing the limits of where they can go with their stuff at the same time as trying to invoke some of those, you know, the, the 2D games like more hidden elements, the stuff that people really get excited about when they get into Mario. Um, it feels mm. it feels like a nice harking back to that stuff. Absolutely. So, Matthew, to close us out, what does the directory say about this one? Uh, half of this entry, I think, is really spot on. The other half, I don't really understand. <laughs> so, cool. good, good. It says, is, is Mario's 3DS debut a truncated galaxy or a fattened new Super Mario Brothers? A good observation. Either way, it's gloriously athletic stuff especially when approached with a time trialers mentality. Oh, okay. What does what does that mean? I don't remember that. Get, get through the level fast, I don't know. I mean, what? like you does do in all Mario time games. Troll mode? Well, like all Mario games, it just the clock counts down, doesn't it? Or most of them. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah bizarre. Not, not the first thing that comes to mind for me with that no. game, but that's yeah. quite strange. Well, take that whoever wrote that blurb um it, 10 on, years ago. Honestly, probably me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, is it like a limited version of Galaxy, or is it like a hyper yeah. version of the kind of older games? I, I think that's quite fair for those mm. those Marios. They sit; that's where they sit between the two. Yeah, I, I certainly um, don't remember having a thought that it should be played really quickly. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if it was me necessarily, but you know, the, mm. the odds are a lot of that directory was me. So we have to we have to go by the stats. Oh, it's, it's nice that we've ended on a, re- a note of totally confusing bullshit. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's exactly what, you know, that's what I'd hope to invoke. <laughs> oh, great stuff. Well, yeah, we've uh, reached the end of the top ten. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Joe. It's been a, a really good episode. Our longest one yet. 
but lovely to get your insight you know it's uh it's it's good um, I, I had a lovely time i i hope people are still here i hope they haven't been upset um and yeah it was just really nice to talk through all this again because you often don't get a chance to look back like this so it's it's been really cool yeah a real a really comprehensive look at the um software library i think covered by this episode so uh yeah great to have your expertise um so to close out uh, where can people find you on twitter joe I'm at 2 plus 2 is Joe. The twos are numbers and the rest is words. It is not a useful thing to try and communicate to anyone. Uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's probably easier to just find me on IGN and then click the link to my Twitter at the bottom of the bottom of a story. Um, yeah, that's where I am. Yep, that's right. You can read um, Joe's writing on obscure website, IGN.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, um, it's been great to have you on. Uh, Matthew, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Cool. Well... Look, Joe. We'll look. We'll find an excuse to have you on down the line to yes. tell more stories about Matthew. Um, I'd love because, that. yeah, that's what the listeners want to hear. Um, you can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. We'll be back next week with an episode about Capcom, I believe. Um, we may or may not have a guest on that one. I forgot to ask Matthew about that. Um, but either way, um, some good Capcom chatter. Yes, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>